0: Cool. one more time this is trip we're on santa barbara radio <laughs> <laughs> great and there's our opener welcome to season four episode seven of acquired the podcast about technology, acquisitions, and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. With all these A-plus IPOs going on, we wanted to do a throwback episode to another era, 1989, where an IPO meant something very different. We come to you today from sunny Santa Barbara, birthplace of Logan Green's transportation dream, if you listen to the Lyft episode, and of course, the home of Sonos, if you listen to that episode. And today we sit here with Trip Hawkins, the founder of the most legendary gaming company in the world, Electronic Arts. Tripp worked as an early employee at Apple Computer as the Director of Strategy and Marketing until 1982, before starting EA, taking it public, and later moving on to start other companies in the gaming space, such as 3DO and Digital Chocolate. Tripp is now a professor of practice in the Technology Management Program at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and we are incredibly lucky to have him here with us today. So welcome, Tripp. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you. For anyone who's new to the show, here's how it works. We walk through the history and facts of a company from founding all the way through an acquisition or IPO. Then we analyze and grade the transaction where we issue judgment on if that was a good idea or not. So the show is really one of storytelling followed by (laughs) one of judgment. If you are involved in startups and you want to dig in with us on company building topics rather than just the exit, we've got a second show for you. You can become an acquired limited partner by clicking the link in the show notes or going to glow.fm acquired and get access to these limited partner episodes featuring interviews with expert operators, investors, and of course, David and I diving deeper on topics like finding product market fit, term sheets,
1: and how venture firms really work. It's pretty cool. I mean, we started this as an experiment what like 6 months ago and yep, November, it's like a real show now and we're just so pumped about how many of you guys are listening and getting value out of it. So, it's been super fun.
0: Lastly, before we dive in, I want to thank the sponsors of all of season 4, Perkins Cooey, Counsel to Great Companies. We have with us today Allison Handy, a partner in the Corporate Securities Group and very conveniently, a fan of the show. Allison, we hear about a lot of investment bankers on the show as they prepare a company for IPO. What is counsel's role in getting IPO ready?
1: Thanks. I'm, I'm really excited that you've got me on here today.
0: So outside counsel's role includes both getting the company ready to be a public reporting company and counseling in the IPO process. So counsel works first with the company on preparing to satisfy securities laws and stock exchange listing requirements. Second, council will help the company in responding to investment bank legal due diligence requests, um, including doing their own diligence so that the council can provide legal opinions to the investment banks. And third, uh, council works with the company and the banks uh, to draft some parts of the S-1, like the description of the business and its strategy, risk factors, MD&A, but Council also takes the lead on some of the other less exciting disclosures like exec comp and governance matters. Great. Thanks, Allison. If you want to learn more about Perkins CUI or reach out to Allison specifically, you can click the link in the show notes or in Slack. All right, David,
1: it is time. It's time. So excited to dive in with Trip here. So, per usual, We'd like to start way back at the beginning <laughs> on this show.
2: So you grew up
1: uh, here in Southern California, right, in, uh, in the 1970s? That's uh, right.
2: What did your family do? What brought them to California? I have family that came here about 100 years ago. Oh, wow.
0: You didn't start early enough, David. Uh,
2: they were uh, you know, back east, and a few of them were uh, obviously entrepreneurs. And uh, I think that's how pretty much everybody in California got here, is they uh, were willing to leave some other place and and head to uh, the, the one of the most remote parts of the planet. So growing up, you loved
1: sports, right? You were a jock, but you also loved games, and games meant something very different back then, right? There were no video games. Games were pen and paper. They were Dungeons and Dragons. They were sports simulations. Those those don't seem to me sitting here like uh, jocks back then played
2: Dungeons and Dragons. How did you <laughs> meld both of those and come to love them? It was the golden age of television. And I found that what I enjoyed the most on television was watching football and baseball. I could tell that something really interesting was going on from a strategy standpoint. So I, I can't say that the time that I realized that I was a strategic thinker, I'm just able later on to look back on it and realize, yeah, that, that's, that's why that spoke to me. I'm seeing these things on television because that's the medium that's available or, or in some cases just even listening on the radio because everybody, everybody had a radio. And then, of course, I decided, hey, I wanna, I'm going to play these things in real life. So I'm you know, becoming a jock in real life and I'm watching it on TV and I've just had this craving for more interaction with it. I found that uh, back in the 1960s, some game designers had invented these uh, cardboard dice games. Mm-hmm. And a lot, a lot of people remember the one, uh, there was a, it was called All-Star Baseball, where yeah, it had these little circular pieces one. Yeah. of paper. And you'd have one for Babe Ruth, and you'd have another one for, for Ty Cobb. And if it's Babe Ruth, there was a big pie slice for him to hit a home run, whereas Ty Cobb had a much bigger pie slice for hitting a single. Yeah, and oh. you would you would put the you would put the thing on a spinner and you'd you'd hit the spinner with your I finger. I remember and this. Then I
1: had one of these growing up in the '80s too.
2: Yeah, so oh. a lot of people remember that one. Yeah, uh, they don't remember uh, my favorite one, which is called Stratomatic. And again, it's a game invented in the '60s. And you roll dice, and there's all these player cards, and you would look up the result. And heck, I was about I don't know ten when I basically on my own figured out Bayesian probability theory from studying <laughs> the dice. And I realized, why does this guy have this here and this other guy has it there? And then I realized, oh my God, there are more ways to roll a seven yeah. than a 12. Oh, and wow. well, how many more ways are there? And why is that? And which guy do I want? And if I'm gonna play my friend and I wanna win, I better figure out you know, how this really works. Again, I just kind of discovered that I found math and statistics fascinating if I could apply it to something strategic where I was competing. I'm a very competitive guy. Uh, Ideally, as a kid, uh, you're tuning into who you are, and part of you are gifts from your ancestors, and hopefully you can discover what abilities you were already born with you can figure out what's going on in your environment that really that really speaks to you and decide then what are you passionate about doing about it. And I, and I had the good fortune to have those things happen. And on the environment front,
1: you, it, was it your senior year in high school you were first exposed to computers?
2: The Actually, earlier in high school, I think I was maybe a uh, sophomore, and and then I was trying to get my friends to play these games and a few of the nerdiest friends loved the games too, and you know we all loved it. You know we all kind of saw what the value was, but a whole lot more friends, kids, they would drift back to watching television. Like it, it was, it was too much work, it's too much work, too much overhead. Yeah. yeah. So you know, and you know, things like D and D are you know kind of famously geeky in yeah. that way, and it's just not everybody's cup of tea. And I'm, I was just thinking about realizing, man, this is this is a really special experience to be this mentally engaged, mm-hmm. but. Not everybody can relate to it. It's just too much work to operate the yep. thing. And that's when, as soon as I heard about computers and I could kind of see it with my own eyes, I was like, this is how you do it. We're going to basically put all of the administrative operating stuff in a box and we're going to put pretty pictures on the screen like television. And what I didn't realize at the time was that I was seeing something that was going to be true 40 years later. Yeah. <laughs> and if you told me, you know, Tripp, that's going to take 40 years. I'll go, oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't know that. So, next thing you know, you spend 40 years working on it. By the way, I, I just have to say that I didn't know I had this accurate forecast about something that would be a high <laughs> school, I'm, right? I didn't know it was going to turn out to be a hundred billion dollar industry. I just thought it was a really cool thing that I cared about and that I wanted to go help make happen. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, I have no idea what's going to happen 40 years from now. I don't know about you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're thinking about it. We, we, we overly speculate, that's for so, sure.
1: So this is all swirling around here in Southern California. You go to college at Harvard. You were there at the same time as as Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, right? Did you, did you interact with them at all?
2: You know, we ended up you know, using some of the same computer labs you know, but I only knew that later. Mm-hmm. I think it's entirely possible that Bill and I would have been in the Aiken Computation Center at the same time without without having it ever actually met. Mm-hmm. Wow. And uh, you know honestly, those of us that were really serious about it, we would go there at night because yeah. these are timeshare systems right, right. And you didn't want to compete with all the students doing their homework during the day. You'd go at night and there were there were basically nerds that you could smell from 10 feet away there were guys <laughs> sleeping under tables i mean it was just you know chaos but if you were really into it you were just thrilled to be there on a machine at night when you had more speed yeah
0: so you were you were also doing something though that bill gates was not doing and that was playing for harvard and playing football talk about how on earth you were balancing being a, a collegiate athlete and being this person that's staying up all night in the computer lab? One of the only people at this time that were dedicated to the craft of of learning and mastering the computer.
2: Yeah, that was that was a tough balancing act, and I I lettered in football as a freshman, mm-hmm. and then I realized that wow, this is so time consuming that. I can't do everything I'm doing. <laughs> so, I, you know, I would have loved to have done it all. In fact, you know, in hindsight, if I could go back and do it differently, I probably would have loved to have played varsity football and done that uh, longer. And what I found was that they actually had a club football program, no practices, really. And it was tackle football. And you would play with, you know, with different dorm dormitory uh, groups and that was a hell of a lot of fun. So uh, you know, one year doing that, uh, we went undefeated and unscored on. You know, we, we we only played six games, and you know, it was really hard to have an elaborate offensive playbook because you know nobody's spending a lot of time practicing. Right. But I, I was the free safety on that team, and we never allowed anyone to score. And I was <laughs> I was the last line of defense. So that was for me probably the highlight of my um, my football life. <laughs> That's amazing. So. Was it at this time though, was it at Harvard where
1: you, you realized you wanted to start a company, uh, and, and started laying in motion all the plans that would, that would, well, I'd I'd actually
2: already done it. And so I started working on it and I got some help from, uh, my, my best friend who, by the way, ended up becoming a football coach. So we're, we're really into football. And so there's a, you can think of that in today's terminology that would be about, you know, prototyping and building a minimum viable product. Yeah, and, yeah. So we did that. And, and then I thought, well, hey, why don't I uh, actually market this? And uh, my, my dad was uh, generous enough to loan me $5,000. And I went and sourced all of the different parts like, a, you know, silkscreen uh, game board and paper parts and things that you had to, you know, have perforations on it so you could punch them out and dice and you know, I had to you know figure out who who am I going to buy dice from? And
0: yeah, so you're building a full tabletop game of yeah, your own. Yeah,
2: and th- so that all got put together, and uh, customers loved it. I got incredibly positive feedback from customers. I had no idea how to run a company. Mm-hmm. I didn't have enough money to do any marketing, so it obviously didn't get very far. So I lost every penny. And
0: this is during undergrad.
2: <laughs> now, I'm in high school. High basically. school. <laughs> I'm basically learning two things. One. Wow, ouch man! It really hurts when you've got this baby, this thing you've created, that's your Ooh, baby extension of yourself and in the has world. it has been rejected by the business world, mm. and you can't keep going with it and that feeling of failure and disappointment that that dream has died creatively yeah. you know it was a good experience to go through that, and then the second thing I learned was, man, this is so much fun i yeah. I gotta do this again, this is amazing, It's so stimulating. <laughs> And I thought, you know, maybe I want to learn some more before I do it again. And so I have have a chance to have a better outcome. And this is, again, in the 1970s where I'm actively thinking about how computers can uh, come into it. And it wasn't too long after that where it was in 1975. And, you know, I'm in a summer job in uh, Santa Monica. You went to GSB, to Stanford Business School, right after Harvard, right? Yeah, so that comes a little bit later. So I'm, I'm still in college. And... This is when uh, a colleague uh, comes back and tells me, uh, "Wow, I was just in a, a retail store where you can rent computer terminals and take them home and have them connect through a modem to your mainframe, and they they only charge you ten bucks an hour. You can basically do computing from home." And I said, "Wow, that's incredible! It's happening. It's finally happening." Yeah. And then he said, "Well, that's not all. Shoot, Intel uh, just you know uh, just announced the invention of the first microprocessor chip that can combine all these things on a single chip." And I'm thinking, yeah, well, dang, well, that's gonna get into homes.
1: And this is, <laughs> uh, this
2: is in the summer of 1975. It turns out that was the world's first computer retail store. It was Dick Heiser's, comput- it's called The Computer Store, run by this guy Dick Heiser. He, was at Apple- he became an Apple dealer uh, later on. And literally, my colleague walks away, and I immediately start sketching it out and saying, okay, how long is it gonna take for the hardware costs to come down, for the number of stores to grow, and for the the number of machines and homes to be big enough that you can make some money selling some games. And that's when I realized that I could probably do that by 1982, seven years later. And that is exactly what I did.
0: You bided your time a little bit until that. It's, you know, listeners might expect, OK, so you went and started Electronic Arts, but you did something else in the interim. And and that was Apple Computer. And that was one of the very first employees at Apple Computer.
2: How did that happen? Can you you tell us
1: the story of of how you got the job and the phone call you got
2: from from Steve Jobs? Well, you know, since you guys want to talk about the IPO of Electronic Arts, the company, oddly enough, it it didn't really even have all that much value until two years after the IPO. And if you look at that time frame, creating that value was a 20-year process. Mm -hmm. And, of course, a lot of entrepreneurs think, oh, yeah, look at this company. It's an overnight success. (laughs) And and it turns out, well, you know, often – it's really not even remotely an That's overnight success. That's the point of this show. <laughs> and so pretty much, you know, there was a, about a decade before Electronic Arts was founded where I'm planning the whole thing. And then it took another decade of actually running the business before it really took off and had a lot of value. Long game we're in here. It, it really is. It really is a long game. And by the way, I thought about this recently when uh, Google announced Stadia, which yeah. is yeah. their play yeah. on uh, the idea of. On uh, cloud streaming cloud gaming, yeah. games, and I thought, yeah. and my initial thought was, yeah, you know, they don't have the game catalog, and they're not going to get it because all the guys that have the game catalogs, two of which Sony Microsoft, are now you know, yeah. joined forces,
0: and they have no first party titles,
2: right? How are they going to? How can they fix that problem? And then I was, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, EA didn't have that in the beginning. Apple right. didn't have that in the beginning. If you're or in the long game, yeah, then you're saying shoot, nobody knows what games are going to be popular 10 years from now. Nobody <laughs> even knows what the technology is going to be that, you're, that the games well, let's build are the going to run. infrastructure and the platform. Well, how do we hang around this long enough? And, uh, you know, frankly, if, if Google thinks, yeah, we just want to be the leader 10 years from now. So which, which young, super talented data scientists, machine learning, AI experts are young indie developers now? that are going to grow in their careers to the point where five, 10 years from now, they're going to make a hit. That could be the next League of Legends or the next Call Fortnite of Duty, or, yeah. the next Fortnite. Yeah, if, if you're willing to plan ahead like that. Most of us generally are way too impatient for that. You know, We, we <laughs> want it to happen now. And of course, Google could maybe even acquire electronic arts, and then they would start to have uh, the back catalog. It's That's going to be a very interest, interesting yeah. space yeah. Uh, to watch. But getting back to our story, yeah, you, you have this thing unfolding over a 20-year period. And I realized, man, uh, I got to know a lot more about how to run a business. And I also need to go help somebody sell computer systems into homes. Yeah. Okay. How am I going to do that? I'm not really an engineer. I don't even understand how electricity works. But I love software. So I've always been around software. Software runs on hardware. And I I was always good at talking to other engineers and kind of understanding the system and how it worked. And I I thought, you know, um, I'm not going to have credibility in Silicon Valley by being an electrical engineer. I'm going to have to build my credibility some other way. Mm -hmm. Now, this is something that a lot of people can still do today. You don't have to be the expert on the the tech. You have to be able to relate to those people. You have to be able to learn their dialect. You have to learn when they're bullshitting you. Uh, You have to be able to call them on their, their stuff. And then you have to command their respect and, and have credibility with them because you have expertise about something that they care about. So in my case, the pathway in was being more knowledgeable up with the customer and the applications. And I thought, okay, how do I get that going? And here, here again, uh, there's a lot of good fortune, I think, in a lot of these uh, stories. But when I first got to the Bay Area, I was you know finishing school at Stanford. And it turns out I'm going right by the headquarters of fairchild semiconductor mm-hmm. and they had actually just come out with uh, one of the first uh, consoles and it was one of the very first consoles again this is mid-70s that you could stick game cartridges into huh so i went into their lobby i never knew they did that wow. yeah it was called the channel f were they uh-huh. competing with atari in effect It it was such a new industry that you're really just competing with yourself, honestly. (laughs) But all the semiconductor companies in the 70s, they're trying to figure out how to drive demand for their chips so they can get more volume. So more of them thought, let's have a consumer division. We'll make watches. We'll make calculators. Yeah. And then some of them thought, well, let's make uh, arcade-type simple consoles consoles. like Pong games. A lot of them made Pong games. And then only a few of them just said, well, hey, how about a, a cartridge system where you can change the game? Anyway, so Fairchild was one of them. It was pretty clueless. They, they, they abandoned it before too long. But while they were doing it, I dropped into their lobby, and I said, I'd like to talk with somebody in marketing. And they go, what about, well, I'm, I'm a Stanford student, and I'd like to offer to do a free market research project. Free is a fabulous word. It's the most powerful <laughs> word in the history of marketing. And it opens a lot of doors. And this junior marketing guy comes out and says, what do you want? And I said, well, you know, here's the deal. And you know, if if you just, you know, give me uh, the addresses of a couple hundred customers, I'll I'll design a questionnaire and work with you on making sure your questions get answered, and we'll basically go try to understand more about who your customers are and what they want. Of course, secretly I'm thinking, yeah, do they prefer football or baseball? <laughs> <laughs> and is there going to be a demand for that? Because that's what I want to make. So uh, he says, okay, sure. I continue on my drive to Stanford, and I said, okay, now I'm going to go get course credit for this. So I didn't get paid, <laughs> yeah, but I was able to build it into my uh, curriculum that Amazing. way. And then uh, there I am in the library at Stanford not too long after that, and I'm in the copier room, and this guy just ahead of me on the copier, he pulls out this report, and I, can, I see video games on it, and he puts it on the copier. He's making a copy of a couple of pages from this thing, and I said, uh, what is that? And he said, "Yeah, this is a study I wrote last summer for this market research firm about, you know, about these simple little uh, pong uh, machines that the semiconductor companies had been making, and he had done a market analysis of it." And I go, "Oh, okay." And then I I basically followed the guy as he went and returned this uh, report to the shelf in the library. And as soon as he left, I I took it off the shelf and read <laughs> it cover to cover. <laughs> and I realized Dang, this is cool. You know, I could do a report like this about personal computers. Yeah. And nobody had done a report about personal computers. They were too new. And <laughs> I mean just think about that statement. I know. <laughs>
1: so this would have been what like 1977, 78. So 78?
2: this is uh yeah, this 76 probably. Okay. Yeah, it was either fall of 76 or uh, early 77. Okay, so I need a summer job between the two years of business school. And I go talk to that same market research firm. They're down in San Jose. And I said, yeah, I'd like to. You know, they, they, were, they were in the habit of hiring MBAs and having them spend the summer writing a study. And I said, I'd like to write a study about personal computers. And the head of that firm says to me, what is a personal computer? Is there this is ma- in San Jose. Yeah. <laughs> heart of Silicon Valley. And, and he's, he's a research firm. Yeah. And, and I explained it to him and he goes, you know, yeah, we do business with all these, you know, big, big, uh, manufacturers and technology companies and cause, and uh, the they, they, don't, the Dex, the, they don't, they uh, yeah. don't care about that. Wow. They're not, we have no demand for that. Amazing. And I'm kind of doing an eye roll like, boy, are you out of it? And then he said, but you know what? We do need to get a report done on computer printers. You know, and there's the kind of printers <laughs> that work with mainframe yeah. yeah, computers yeah, yeah. and so on. So, uh. I tell you what, why don't you do that for us this summer? And then if that goes well, we'll talk about this other thing later. So, of course, that all went really well. And by the by, the fall of 1977, he's beginning to hear about it because by then the first West Coast Computer Fair had happened in the spring of 77. That's where the Apple II made its yeah. debut. Yep. And I was there. Wow. And, yeah, it was a v- very heady, exciting Did time. you meet Stephen Waz there? they were probably there. I didn't meet them. I remember seeing the Apple II and thinking, wow.
0: Yeah, did that feel in the moment like, oh my God, I'm a part of the world changing right now? Could you you feel that it was...
2: You could totally feel that, but the other thing that really jumped out at me was recognizing it's that one. You Mm -hmm. know, it's like, I know all these companies, yeah. and I'm looking at all their products. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking were, like, the Tandy II, was there. Or like... The Apple II looks like it's something from a sci-fi movie that's going to be happening in 20 years, and everything else in the entire convention hall looks like it's part of the past, like a bunch of buggy webs wow. and you know uh, carriages before the car is invented. Yeah. I you know? well, we just this, had that feeling. I assume
1: you're going to get into this right now, but the home computer market at this time was dominated by Radio
2: Shack, right? Right. Yeah, the uh, TRS-80, also known as the Trash 80, yeah, it was a very convoluted uh, system, and it, among other things, it didn't even have color, so it was basically, uh, in fact, it didn't have bitmap graphics either. It was a really clunky thing, <laughs> but they it was cheap. Radio Shack had thousands of stores, and so it was distribution. It was, it was doing, doing a lot of volume. Anyway, so they allowed me to do this study. I got entree at all these companies, and so I uh, that included Apple. And I went down to visit one of the first handful of office workers there, and the most amusing part of this was there's was only a handful of people there at that time. This is probably late '77 or or maybe a little bit into early '78. And I said, "Are you guys doing any software?" Because I'm a software guy. I want to know what are you doing at software. I said, "Oh yeah, we, we yeah we're doing software." I said, "Cool, <laughs> can I see it?" He said, "Sure." And then we walk around the corner, and their entire software effort is one guy. Pretty sure this was Randy Wigginton. Huh. He's one of the wow. very first uh, yeah. engineers, and he was working on a uh, Star Wars ripoff where the company didn't have a Star Wars license, but the Star first Star Wars movie had come out in the summer of seventy seven. Oh, wow. wow. And they thought, hey, let's let's it's do something this where we have bitmap graphics and we can do something where you're like you're like Luke and you're you know you're, you're trying to blow dude. up the Death Star oh. and we're gonna. Do that in some really simple graphics. Unbelievable
0: that Steve Jobs would later buy Pixar from George Lucas. Amazing. And yet Apple at this point didn't have a Star Wars license. Well, in
2: fact, I remember after I started Apple, we went to CES and we're showing that game. And this guy comes up and hands me a business card and says, you're going to have to stop doing that. And sure enough, he's from Fox. <laughs> oh wow! And he's sort of right, busting us. Fox going, had the You guys, to you guys can't have a Star Wars right, game Century without Fox. us having so, yeah. licensed it to you, and you got to pay for that. So you're go, like, oh, it's uh, a different uh. shaped trench. <laughs> 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 but you know, this is like the cowboy period. You yeah. know, where can, you know, kind uh, Stay on you're, you're not asking for permission. You're just doing stuff until they stop you. Right. Right. Wow. Wow. So anyway, uh, I hadn't met the leaders of Apple yet. And I go back and I'm finishing school and the study gets finished and I'm, a, I'm doing a little bit of a tour to meet with clients and uh, talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, uh, I produce a one-page flyer and I mailed it out to everybody uh, that I knew and everybody that it, that had been interviewed. And, uh, and then I'm just at home one day not too long after that and the phone rings and I pick it up and there's this guy yelling at me. And saying, uh, why the hell are you calling Radio Shack uh, the market share leader?
1: (laughs) This is incredible.
2: And it turns out it's Steve Jobs. And he's seen this flyer that says that Radio Shack's a market share leader. He's really pissed off about it. And I knew why. Because they were running an ad campaign in the hobby magazine saying that Apple was the world's best-selling personal computer. And it wasn't Which, of course, was total trash. Yeah, exactly. Again, this is the cowboy period. And the Apple II was a, frankly, a much more legitimate personal computer than the TRS-80, but it Not just wasn't accurate for them to say that. And yeah, he thought, well, who who is this dude that's outing us and making us look bad, <laughs> yeah. making us look like so he letters. calls you up
1: to berate you, and this you is turn that, the tables and then <laughs> well,
2: here's the other thing about how intimate Silicon Valley is that he had to know somebody that knew my home number, <laughs> so 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 wow. we knew somebody mutually. And Did you I, trace back how that
0: ended up? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: But at the time, I didn't understand how that worked. But, you know, he and I were having this conversation. Of course, I have, I'm having to hold the phone handset about a foot away from my ear <laughs> because he's yelling so loud. I, I managed to tell him, uh, yeah, the you know, the study's finished, and he wants to argue with me, naturally. That's what he does. And he said, I'd be happy to bring the study and show it to you. And this is a study that in today's dollars would have cost about $2,500. There's no way Apple can afford it. So I know I know that being able to come in and show it to them, right? You know, they're right. thinking, "Look at this That's we're getting $2,500 Is yeah. that yeah. Dollar, yeah. Right. Uh,
1: right.
2: free value? And I was, like, Steve's probably very pleased with himself that his one phone call yielded this. Oh, totally. <laughs> and and of course, I, I'm going to say he's arguing with what I'm saying about the company. I'm saying, well, I'll let you read what I say about the company, but I think you'll find it very flattering. I think you guys are great. Okay. <laughs> and then I said, oh, and by the way, I'm I'm actually looking for a job in the industry. <laughs> All right, so I go down there, and they offer me a job. And wow. it's, it's all based on this idea that I know something about the market, and I know something about customers. I'm just a kid, right? Did Steve offer you a job on the spot when you came down there? Uh, not on the spot. And what, here's what's not really known that well about Apple is that everybody thinks about the two Steves. Right, but there was, there there was Mike. Re- there were really three equal musketeer co-founders of the real corporation. It was kind of a hobby thing. Mm-hmm. And then Mike Markla came in to be the adult supervision And he and the two Steves each had about a third of the company. Mm -hmm. So that's really that kind of tells you who the real founders are.
0: Mike cashed out pre-IPO, right? Oh no 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 no.
2: Mike actually hung in there longer than anybody. Oh okay. So the thing about Mike is that Don Valentine had been told about the two Steves, and Don was already an elite leading venture guy in the 1970s. And had come from Fairchild. Yes, and Intel. And so he he went and met with the two Steves when they're in the garage, and he thought, yeah, this is way too early for us. Mm-hmm. And and then he told Markula to talk to them.
0: Mm, no so way. So so he
2: was kind of trying to turn Markula into the angel that would help get it legitimized enough, a little more for legitimized. Okay, so Mike goes and meets with them, and they're you know they're pretty much unkempt, uncivilized people. In fact, later Markula would tell me that these are the
1: days when Steve wasn't showering,
2: right? Yeah, well. Uh, Literally my first week at Apple, I figured out what a hazardous person Steve was. And towards the end of that first week, I'm standing next to Mike, and Steve's down at the end of the the hall going by. And I said to Mike, Mike, uh, we really need to do something about that. (laughs) (laughs) And I pointed at Steve, and I called him a that because he's a thing, right? And Mike says, "Trip, yeah, look, come here. He pulls me into his office. He closes the door and says – trip you have no idea how much better he is now than a year ago a year ago he was like a you know the wild man from Borneo. he was completely uncivilized i had to teach him where you put the fork and the knife at a table setting you know oh he's gosh. he's basically explaining almost it's as like if he a had a child what yeah. a fork is and how you how you use a fork and he's he was just asking me trip try to be patient <laughs> look at the progress there, there's going to be this guy can do a lot for us yeah mm-hmm. Well, but anyway, so those three guys got together. That's, that's amazing, by the way, that
1: Mike, I mean, these were the days of the first thing investors and adult supervision did when they came into the company was fire these people, right? Like, it's amazing a, that it's Mike still true saw that
2: there's a very high turnover rate. Yeah. You know, saw that Steve had the potential to become the greatest of all time. Uh, well, and, and, and was made brilliant technical contributions in the first uh, for several years of, of the company. So he recognized the talent in both of them. And the other thing about Mike, though, is that he didn't want to run the company either. Mm. <laughs> so none of them really wanted to run it. So Mike was smart about setting it up for himself in a good way, where he, he brought in Mike Scott or Scotty to be the CEO. And then Mike was the chairman. Ah. So he's the boss of everybody. And then his discipline was marketing. So he was in charge of marketing because that was fun for him. And then he's he's really the, the chairman who's still the, the big boss. And, and And occasionally over the next, say, 20 years – he would have to be CEO for a while during some interim phase, but you know, he just always remained connected with the company. He was always in, in some critical role on the board and you know, it kind of outlasted everybody if you look at his total tenure. But at any rate, so Mike was my first boss and then Steve was my boss later, and, but I collaborated with Steve a lot initially because on my second day at the company, Mike said, "Trip, you know something about business. Can you find a way for us to sell these to businesses? And that hadn't really happened yet.
0: Because only consumers were buying the Apple IIs at
2: this point. It was really just hobbyists.
0: Were you able to sell it to businesses?
2: We were. And, and of course, the invention of the spreadsheet helped a lot. Ah, was and it I, brought, visi- I brought the. VisiCalc uh, the. Yeah, VisiCalc. I brought the first spreadsheet into Apple, and that product line hung around for like 10 years. So the Apple II was a huge. Turned out to be a huge business, and it lasted much longer than anyone else thought, which was a good thing because it kept Apple alive. (laughs) Because then Steve and I went out to scheme out the next generation. Mm -hmm. And honestly, we were way overly optimistic about how quickly that would be relevant. Mm. And ultimately, there was obviously a lot of failure there. Mm -hmm. And we had the right ideas, Mm -hmm. but the market was going to need time to develop. Is this primarily the Lisa so it's it started with Lisa and mm-hmm. then you go into the first Mac which also didn't really do very much. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, for
0: how much the 1984 Macintosh is heralded today, it was not a best-selling product. It
2: was not a market success. Means. Well, and, and ultimately the financial struggles of the Mac is what got Steve kicked out. Yeah. So anyway, it is very interesting because then you start you have a decade after he gets booted out where uh, Apple keeps losing share and it was Steve's fault actually because he wanted Microsoft apps for the Mac, and he was really careless about the IP license that they needed to do Windows, because he didn't take that threat seriously. Whoa. And and the licensing deal just really came back to haunt them. So and by the time Apple realized, whoa, this is really not fair because Windows is copying our stuff, and they're putting it on all these uh, PCs that are manufactured by all these different companies, and we can't fight with that, and Apple's market share just kept getting smaller. Oh, my gosh. And finally, when Apple decided this is wrong and unfair and we're going to have to sue Microsoft, Microsoft said, well, here's the license agreement you guys gave <laughs> us. And Bill, <laughs> had just, Bill had just outsmarted Steve you didn't restrict in the us legal from, paperwork.
0: Wow. Even though the Macintosh was the very first platform for Word and then Excel, and then even later in 89 PowerPoint, you didn't restrict us from putting it on other platforms. And that's true also.
2: And again, it was all Steve thinking it's all about us. And we don't have to worry... They're not going to be able to do anything that's going to create a problem. Uh, Oops! So it's kind of funny because Steve saved Apple, but he destroyed destroyed it it. first. (laughs) Oh my goodness! (laughs) And then he and then he he goes back and he cleans up his own mess in pretty spectacular fashion. The Star Wars analogies are just too good. There's too many. Too many. Too many. Uh, So while
1: you're at Apple, though, it's there that you realize that all of this software. Is a creative art. Was it at Apple that that's where you, you kind of started well, coming to this?
2: I think one of the things I had learned from some of the courses I had taken in business school that you probably don't want to start a company unless, I mean, it, the term distinctive competence was already around in those days. You better be good at something. Mm-hmm. But I had latched onto the notion that you'd better have a big idea, and I don't, I don't know how that seed first got planted. You know, there are people like Jim Collins. Later, they would call it uh, mm-hmm. the the, the hag. You know, the the big, hairy, audacious goal. So I, I thought, yeah, there's got to be some angle. There's got to be some unique dimension. In fact, that the, in fact, the, my favorite way of thinking about it is uh, what's called the hedgehog concept. And that that's where, yeah, it's not really about distinctive competence because you can have a lot of competent competitors, but the hedgehog has to compete with the fox. Mm-hmm. The fox is really big. It's really fast. It's smart. It's got big, long teeth. Uh, and the hedgehog's not good at being a fox. What it can do is roll up into a ball and have spiky fur. And that's all it needs to do to to defend itself from a fox. A fox will eventually get bored and leave it alone. So that's really what it's about. And I'm, I'm thinking about that while I'm at Apple. And I and I know 1982 is coming. And I know that's going to be the year when wow, I need to do it. Wow, so that's in the back it, of your head this whole time. The whole time. The whole time. And... And I'm working with these incredibly creative software people like Bill Atkinson and Larry Tesler, and many others. And it just finally occurred to me that these guys are not engineers. They're creative people. They're mm. artists. Mm-hmm. They're in fact their personalities. It's almost like they're divas. Well, like you said, most of them either
1: <laughs> didn't go to college or dropped out, or, you know, they're they're like uh they're like Picasso's.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and and boy, you, you've really got to think about how to manage them differently, organize them differently, give them their uh, creative freedom, and figure out well, what are the support services you need around people like that to enable them to really blossom and be their, the, their best selves. And that's when I realized that, yeah, you know, uh, you may think of this as engineering, but this is actually an art form, mm-hmm. and Hollywood is already – turning art other art forms into businesses you you get music Mm. and film and television and even book publishing kind of fits into this and i thought oh okay so there's a way to make a new company that really believes in this idea of a software artist and becomes a new kind of hollywood Mm -hmm. around that new platform Mm -hmm. that new medium and i i definitely saw it as an entirely new medium again i I don't think anybody saw that before I did. I mean, I I was thinking about that pretty early. So as you
1: were talking about this and you know, eventually talking to Don Valentine and Sequoia about it, like did people think you were crazy? Like were were they like, oh yeah, this is like you're onto something or Well plenty
2: of people thought I was crazy. Like like (laughs) the uh, like the head of economics at Harvard. (laughs) I had a lot of people try, you know, try to shut me down or tell me not to do it. Okay, so you you get
1: this idea, it's nineteen eighty two, the time has come and you're seeing you're in the industry. PCs are coming into homes. What was the first step to electronic arts?
2: So, again, that maybe the last year at Apple, it was a difficult year. I mean, the, Apple the company, was public, right? Yeah. And after the company had gone public in late 1980, suddenly there's all this wealth. Mm-hmm.
0: It's a, a billion-dollar company at this point, right? Or somewhere yeah, near um, there?
2: Well, in terms of uh, Market revenue... Uh, it, it's in that range, and the market cap is even, uh, I mm. think, uh, more than that. I've, I've a few billion. Forgotten. Dollar, right. This is 1980. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, again, it was a super high growth from the whole, the whole time I was there. I, the the year before I got there, the revenue was around two million dollars, and and then my first year, it's it was like, I think 14. Wow. And then it was 60, and then it was 350. I mean, Whew. it was just crazy. And, you know, when I started, there were only 25 office workers. And then we had about 25 guys on an assembly line in the back assembling a couple hundred it. of these hobby machines. Mm-hmm. And four years later, we have 4,000 employees. Steve's flying the pirate flag on the Mac uh, office, right? <laughs> and the thing is, uh, it just kind of got out of control after we went public. It's like, when, when there starts to be the wealth, it attracts everybody. Everybody wants to work there and then there's a lot of politics and bureaucracy and different fiefdoms and and uh, the uh, CEO went a little crazy after the IPO and and he ended up getting pushed out so there there was just chaos yeah and and then just various ways in which uh tension was uh growing and it, it you know the company was kind of heading into that malaise that really hit in the mid 80s mm-hmm. uh, when uh John Sculley and Steve had their you know, big uh, yep. championship prize fight—an episode <laughs> for another day, indeed. <laughs> so th- those those seeds were already getting uh, planted, and I was hanging around because I thought, you know, I'm working on products that haven't come to market yet. I really should finish that process, and and yet I was not enjoying it. I mean, so I, I didn't really love being there, but I really mm-hmm. I felt like, wow, this company has been so good to me. Uh, they've been so loyal to me. This has been such an insane, fabulous opportunity. I've I've learned so much here. And that's actually maybe the best advice I would give anybody starting their career is don't think about the money at all. If necessary, work for free to get into the place you want to get into and then go to the place that isn't just the place that you're passionate about in terms of what they do and what their values are. But you basically want to go to the place where you're going to learn the fastest. Mm -hmm. And, man, for me, the learning curve at Apple was Incredible. Oh, I bet. And the, just the sheer talent of a lot of the people and the, the brilliance and the leadership and the creativity, just to be around that. And then to have the thing organically growing that fast where you're seeing the outcomes of thousands of decisions and mm-hmm. the good, the bad, and the ugly, it was just amazing. So I just really felt like I uh, kind of owed, there was a debt of gratitude there that kept me there maybe even one or two years longer than I otherwise might have stayed. But I could see it coming. And I'm thinking about it all the time. And then one day, uh, a fellow employee uh, dropped off a magazine and said, hey, there's an article in here that might be of interest to you. And I found a different article, one-page article about Don Valentine. And I I, I thought, yeah, Don Valentine, I know who that is. Because basically, Sequoia had come in after Mike had gotten things going. Around the time that I joined, the company did a very small venture around. They raised $3 million. And Valentine uh, led that deal. And joined the board, right, and the price per share was three dollars per share If you adjust for splits, it would probably be like a penny, maybe less and about a year later, we did another round at forty two dollars a share, wow. which again would still be pennies if you adjust for uh, <laughs> uh splits and that 's when Valentine sold out, you know so you can see you know Ooh, it, it went yeah. from three to forty two he didn 't do that bad, but it yeah. then from from forty two it went to like a hundred thousand you know so yeah. He missed out on most of the the value, and I remember sitting with Steve in his office around the time of that uh, funding round, and talking about what what is Valentine thinking? You know, why is he doing this? And, and we were just laughing about it because we both we both knew that forty two dollars was actually still really cheap. Yeah, we were, where we were headed, it was going to be much much more than that, and that he was going to miss the boat. And sure enough, he did miss the boat. But it left me with this curiosity about. What did what is what did Valentine think we were doing wrong? Yeah, who is this? That made him want to jump off the bus. I was always curious about that.
0: Has he ever talked about that? Do we ever does anyone ever? I'm sure Don would never
2: admit that he ever made any kind of mistake about any investment. (laughs) 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 At any rate, I had this curiosity about Don, and I'm reading this article, and I'm already thinking about starting my own company. And it says in the article that a guy had come in to pitch him. And Don had intimidated the guy so badly that he passed out in his office. <laughs> and VC in, life goals. And in <laughs> that oh, moment, God. I'm thinking, No, I want Don Valentine as an investor. I want him on my board. That's amazing, because I want someone that tough, that's willing and able to stand up to me. I'm going to need that. Yeah. So I, you I, knew
1: at this point, you know, for, both from your own experience and then from Apple, how hard this
2: was, right?
1: Starting a company and going on this journey,
2: yeah, and and you know you also realize, particularly you know, you hang around someone like Steve. It was a real blessing for me to have a really great relation with him, and work closely with him for four years, and get to really know him personally. We all have blind spots, mm-hmm. and you've you got to make sure in your team that there there's complementary people so that you everybody sees everything when you add it all mm-hmm. up. And yes, Steve was really victimized by his blind spots. Uh, it would prove out in my career that I would be victimized by my blind spots. And you're, you're just trying to figure out as, to the extent of your ability at that time, you know, mm-hmm. what kind of collaborative effort can we put together here? And again, I was just damn curious about this guy, Don Valentine. He said I had not actually met him. So I contact him and I go over to the office. And I'm thinking, you know, he's he's an older guy. He's kind of traditional and he's probably going to tell me that I really need to stay at Apple and finish the products I've been working on, to get closure and to not be a loser that well, would no, quit that's in the middle not of done. my project. <laughs> and that's not at all what he says. He says I asked well, him, "What do you think I should do?" And he said, "You need to quit Apple as soon as possible." And <laughs> come over he, here and start and, this and company then right he's saying, now. And literally saying, "We got extra space. You know, come over and you can start it right here." Because he's thinking, "Yeah, I want to control this thing and, and have the inside track on it." And uh, yeah, that was obviously uh, a real breakthrough for me because I didn't expect to hear that. Wow.
1: Can you tell us the story of um, you guys went to lunch before the investment was closed, right, and what he said to you?
2: Yeah, this is classic Don Valentine. So he takes me to his country club for lunch, and this is before he's actually wired the money, so it hasn't quite happened yet. And he said, uh, yeah, I just want to make sure that we're doing the right thing here to make the investment, and I just want you to understand that in the boardroom, if I'm telling you what to do and you always do what I say, then what the hell do I need with you? <laughs> He's basically saying. He wants you to stand up to him. You, better be, really you, opinion, better, but, you better be the dude that's got the vision for this yeah. thing and you'd better know it. I'm going to bring the fire it, and you got to bring the
1: fire right back. And,
2: <laughs> and you, you better have some conviction yeah. about what you're doing because I'm investing in you. He's basically saying, if I'm the smartest guy in the room, then what the hell am I investing in you for? <laughs> this is amazing. So
0: we all know what Electronic Arts is today. I mean, it's like the second biggest gaming company in the world, like $30 billion, huge company. What was the vision in that conversation with Don when you said, I'm thinking about leaving Apple to do this thing? What was this thing?
2: Yeah, so it was to start a new kind of game publisher and if you go back and look at that original business plan, which I still have, it's wow. probably the only copy that exists. Wow. wow. In that original business plan, it says that the company is a system. Hmm. So, you know, a lot of times you think, oh, a company is a product mm-hmm. or a company is a technology. A company is going to be a brand. Mm-hmm. What, what I wrote in that plan was we're going to build a system
1: modeled after hmm.
2: Hollywood. Exactly. And it's basically a system hmm. that says, okay, we're going to go find these independent, brilliant, creative artists, and we're going to offer them a whole scheme of services and support. We're going to build development tools and create the equivalent of a digital arts studio. Mm-hmm. And, of course, and, this comes to be the
1: model of game And, and then we're going to
2: uh, uh, invent new contracts, new packaging, new marketing methods, and a new channel of distribution Because up to that point in time, nobody had sold software of any kind directly to retail retailers.
0: Wow. So it really was this notion of sort of publisher first studio or developer second it's like we're gonna go and give the right structure and support to the, the right sort of developers but we ourselves who our core competency is this big umbrella of distribution services infrastructure I mean is much more so the way we think about a, a game publisher today they become much more bifurcated but
2: it, yeah and honestly I, I believe it was the beginning of professional video game publishing because what had come before that? There there were actually some pretty capable people that had gotten started as early as 1980. So companies like Broderbrand, if you look at Doug Carlson, his brother, uh, those guys did a fabulous job. They were uh, really classy competitors to have. In fact, Mm. we used to uh, regularly play softball against them, and it was a (laughs) fantastic rivalry. And I was always jealous of that company because they always had some big monster hit game that was like half the revenue. And we, we never had that. Uh, for, yeah, like the first 10 years, we were like huh. more of a portfolio of, yeah. of we had all these yeah. singles and they always had a home run with with the bases loaded. Yeah, you know, great guys, great company. And so they were part of this, uh, I think, early uh, experimentation of moving something out of the hobby phase and really making it a real business. But pretty much before electronic cards. But they didn't know distribution, right? Well, here's all the things that really were not true until electronic arts. One of them is that nobody had given an advance to a developer ever. Oh, wow. Uh, no, there, there, nobody had a really so good... nobody was financing Nobody the had a really, really good contract yeah. f- about how this is going to work. Nobody had figured out the business model of exactly how do you compensate the developer. For example, what happens if I make a t-shirt about the game? What do they get for that? Mm-hmm. What happens if we want to make marketing posters? What happens... If it gets turned into a movie later, I mean, just thinking all of that through and figuring, okay, well, we need to make money, and we want to make sure that we make it. But what what can we do for them? Yeah, and of course the recording industry had figured out
1: all of this. Yeah, so that's what I yeah. did
2: is I actually went to Hollywood and I and I got to know some people and asked one of them, "Can you get me a copy of a recording contract?" Huh. And, mm. Wow, and you know, and I'm studying that, and of course I'd I already done software contracts at Apple. And I went to my lawyer that I'd worked with at Apple, and I said, "Look, we're going to take these two things, and we're going to make a whole new kind of contract." And I kind of directed them on how to knit it together, what stuff it needed to cover. And nobody had really thought about that process until then. And it's the same thing about everything about the uh, distribution channel. We, we we invented a new kind of packaging, and of course, the f- the funny thing about that
0: didn't it look like records or something? They were like
2: they were like record albums. And this starts this starts with me just being cheap because. <laughs> I'm looking at the the baggies. You know, the, the, the uh, first generation of hobby packaging was just like a baggie with a disc in it. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And I said, yeah, well, that's really not even professional. So we're going to have to do something. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, but it can't be very expensive to make it. And I said, well, record albums are selling at retail for $9. $9 mm-hmm. So they can't really be spending a lot of money on the <laughs> album cover. We'll just go to the record manufacturer. The guys that manufacture yeah. the record right. albums, we'll get them to give us albums. And we literally went to the largest one of those in the world, and they they uh, clued us in on the fact. Well, actually, it's about the paper cost, and we can give you Mm. your own custom design in a smaller size, and you'll save money because it'll have less paper. And and that's where we were able to design the standard software box, a folding album that had a sleeve where you can put the manual and a sleeve where you can put the disc, and then enough space for all the artwork about the artist. And about the game uh-huh. and we're really the first people to kind of put the artist on the front mm. and have a lot of information about the the artist and to really make it say, "Hey, this is kind of like this is this is like showbiz yeah mm-hmm. and of course uh, again, ironically, the media loved the idea of the software artist and the idea that we're pioneering this new medium and it's a new creative art form. They wrote about that all the time. Mm-hmm. But the uh, gamers didn't care about it for quite a long time. <laughs> in fact, they barely even knew who we were. Well, I was sitting on a plane next to this guy, and you, you get a, it's sometimes in this conversation, what do you do? And, and he found out I'm in a game company, and he didn't know the name. He didn't know who Electronic Arts was. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, have you heard of this game? Oh, I have that. I, I kept naming games. Oh, yeah. Your games? And he kept saying he had them, and I realized wow. after a while, oh, yeah, you know what? He's a software pirate. So this guy is getting all these—because everybody was pirating games. Wow. And I realized, yeah, the reason he doesn't know Electronic Arts is because he doesn't have any of the packaging. Wow. (laughs) So maybe he's not noticing the logo when it uh, pops up on the screen. Uh, It took forever for Electronic Arts to really have brand power and for any of the individual artists to really have uh, brand notoriety themselves. Going back to the
0: original financing and starting in Sequoia, so you mentioned that Don wanted it to start in Sequoia's office so that he could sort of control it and watch it. You, when you emailed us and we've been going back and forth, mentioned that you had competing offers. How did that whole thing go down? And you ended up signing a deal uh, to finance the company with $2 million. What did the terms end up being on that?
2: Yeah, so we, I did accept Don's offer. I, you know, I, I basically... Had funded the company originally myself. That's right. You put like $200,000 into it. It was closer to three hundred. Mm-hmm. dollars and, and I I was basically just running it myself. I was the only person. So I had I incorporated, I was running out of my home office and starting to have a lot of these conversations and kind of developing uh, the business plan. Mm-hmm. And it was as soon as I started making job offers to other people mm-hmm. that. I thought, well, you know, I don't want them working in my home, <laughs> so I'll take Don up on his offer, and and then next thing you know we packed uh, six people, uh, it basically into they they gave us one office oh we put uh, I don't know a, a few really? people there. At that time, there were different venture firms that were uh, making offers. Again, you talk about uh, the intimacy. Uh, <laughs> I'm at home one day, and the phone rings, and it's John Doerr. Uh-huh. Uh, wow. I didn't I didn't know who John Doerr was. And next thing I you know, I've got uh, Brooke Byers and John Dor uh, kind of whining and dining me and trying to figure out how to get on the deal. I already knew Ben Rosen. Ben Rosen was the leading semiconductor analyst right. uh, at a time when he worked for Morgan Stanley. Hmm. And he became one of the first uh, Visicalc Spreadsheet users, hmm. and so he was—he was, he was uh, clearly one of the hobbyist innovators that kind of understood the uh, the desktop right. uh, benefit, and became I don't know one of the influencers that you know helped uh, uh, helped Apple get established. And of course, he was an early—he uh, must have been allowed in uh, as an angel investor in one of the early rounds. He and LJ Seven ended up starting a venture firm. Seven Resin, of course. So I had a relationship with Ben from my time at Apple, and. Uh, it ended up that different firms were competing. Uh, Dave Marcourt uh, from, from his firm, he couldn't get into EA, so he invested in this other company called Microsoft.
0: <laughs> Whoa. That Is worked out really well. Was
2: this. he <laughs> August Capital? Is yeah. that his That's firm? what he's called now, but it, it was Capital. a different name then. I yeah. forgot what the, uh, that yeah. other company name was.
0: And of course, for listeners, John John Doerr from Kleiner Perkins Caulfield and Byers, and of course you mentioned Byers as well. From
2: Yeah, so uh, I ended up allowing... Sequoia to lead, because I felt they deserved that. And then uh, the other half of the deal was divided between Seven Rosen and Kleiner. But uh, Brooke and John from Kleiner, you know, they really wanted more. And so we ended up doing another round six months later at a price four times higher. Whoa. Wow. And again, this is a, this is a, a thing that w- w- that was happening that was different than what had happened before. Yeah. Hardly anybody had raised any money. Yeah, and so here's Electronic Arts. He's saying, "Well, we've just raised more money than any game company ever." You're like the Uber
0: of and game publishers. And
2: uh, I've got the best lawyers and the best the PR best firm. And, and you, know, you know, I'm just making sure we got the best of everything. We're stacked. There wow. is a belief that I had at that time that we could be number one, and it's like this is one of those things where I, I I had to get my ass kicked later many times and realize you know you don't always have to be number one, <laughs> yeah <laughs> because it's actually really hard, <laughs> and if you're playing for number one you're probably going to have to take bigger risks and you know it, you know sometimes it's okay to be in the top five or the top ten. Yep. How much of the company did you sell to raise that two million? You know I I think it's not that different than it is today. I think after those two rounds that EA did it yeah you know, they they probably own close to half. Yeah, mm-hmm. which
1: and that was all the capital you raised as a private company. Right? Well, actually,
2: many years later, when we know we're pre-IPO, and we also know we're going into the console business and we're going to be manufacturing our own cartridges mm-hmm. and and probably fending off a big lawsuit because we're reverse engineering <laughs> the Sega Genesis. Oh, well, we're going to get into that. <laughs> knowing knowing all of that, uh, it's like okay, uh, let's do a mezzanine round and and then let's do an IPO but but yeah pretty much uh, the company was built on those those oh, first two rounds of capital wow. and even the IPO which only brought in 8 million which is kind of shocking <laughs> by today's standards uh, that that Uber money has been in sitting million. in that 8 million has been sitting in EA's bank account ever since i mean they wow. never had to dip into it wow it's wow. amazing that is different
1: today
0: david i know you're going to take us forward and and we need to one one thing uh that i want to pull out of trip is does your business plan have the name of the company on it, and what was the name of the company that you incorporated as?
2: Okay. So when I incorporated the company on May 27th, 1982, it was called Amazing Software. And it's funny because some people loved it and others hated it. (laughs) And after I hired some employees and there's people hanging around the office and people are calling and they're having to answer the phone and say Amazing Software... (laughs) They, some of them just, uh, no, no, this is not it. <laughs> this is not the the, the, the winning name. And it, it rather rapidly boiled down because, of course, I'm pushing for the idea that, you know, it's got to be about this idea of software as an art form. Mm-hmm. And there's different words that can come into that. And so we pr- pretty quickly had it boiled down to either a, a electronic artists. And I, I had just read a book about the history of United Artists. Right, of course. So United Artists for me, you know, for a couple of years already at that time was a great source of inspiration because it was a similar kind of an analogy. What had happened there because these four mm-hmm. great Hollywood talents mm-hmm. had disrupted the system by forming their own studio. And that's what became uh, United Artists. And so that, that's why Electronic Artists was on, on that list. And, and then uh, Steve Hayes, uh, also known as Shays, he said, well, uh, we're not the artists they are. Hmm. And, and, and it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and this is about two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And everyone goes, oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, okay, Electronic Arts then. They and it, being the developers. The, yeah, so we're, we're, we're serving the artists, but we're yeah. Electronic Arts. You're the, about the arts, but you are the, not the artist. We're the partner company. Of course, you know, that obviously changed over time. Eventually, we had our own internal studios, yeah. etc. But this is what a lot of people don't appreciate about Names, is that in the beginning, they're completely arbitrary. They don't actually have any meaning at any rate, uh, you you can get really personally attached to a name and think it really matters. But what really matters is how you go make that name mean something. Mm -hmm. And Electronic Arts was that kind of a mashup where, at a minimum, it helped us tell the story to the media and got the media engaged in helping us spread the word. Mm -hmm. Because uh, in a startup company, you can't do saturation bombing with advertising. You don't have the mm-hmm. capital to do it. Mm-hmm. And if you're pioneering something new, it's going to build slowly. It's gonna, Word of mouth is going to be really important. Your reputation, based on the quality of what you're doing and the creativity in it, yeah. th- that's what's going to have to drive it. Cool.
0: So we're going to dive in here and open up a chapter on EA Sports. There's one thing that happens before, and in, 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 that's in 1983, you recruited Steve Wozniak to join the Board of Electronic Arts. How did that go down? And and at that point, was then the board you and Steve and Don and and did it stay that way through IPO? And and what was that relationship like?
2: Well, actually, I founded the company in 1982, and the venture funding happened in December of 1982. So okay. uh, from May through December, I own no, the company, yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. And and I'm paying for everything. Yep. And and then we didn't really have to have a board meeting right until. December when now now there's venture investors and Kleiner's on the you know so uh, Brooke Byers is on the board from Kleiner Perkins mm-hmm. Don Valentine's on the board and that's so Waz actually was on the board from the very beginning uh, was he the independent board member
1: right.
2: yes and we actually then uh, added a couple of other spectacular independent board members the next year including my all-time favorite board member Dick Asher so the next year 1983.
1: After you get the venture financing wrapped up, one of, I don't believe it was your first title, but one of your first titles, this is where your other thread of sports re-enters the story, is Dr. J and Larry Bird go one-on-one. Which David and I watched
0: some YouTube videos of last night and is still an awesome game. It's still awesome. (laughs) Incredible. You know, if you
2: had a chance to actually play it, you'd even appreciate it more because the design was so simple and elegant that anybody could play it. In fact, it's actually, I think it might even be the only time in history that retailers, when you're out on a sales call, even you could get the retailers to play it. Wow. wow. Mostly the retailers, you know, even like, honestly, even like John Madden, John Madden has never played Madden football. (laughs) He would get his (laughs) sons to play it. Yeah. You know, we work very heavily with uh, his two sons. But most people are intimidated. You you hand them a joystick, and they're thinking, "I'm oh, going to yeah. screw up, right, right, and it's right. going to be embarrassing, and I don't want to humiliate myself." So no, you do it. And you know, I've been on so many sales calls with so many different kinds of customers where they're saying, "Oh yeah, just show it to me." Yeah. But uh, with, with that one on one game, basically, if you press the button, the guy would shoot the ball, and it might go in. That's all you had That's to amazing. do. It's amazing, and and it, and and then you would realize, oh hey, okay, I can do this, and then you start to move the stick and realize, oh, I can actually run around, and I can go get the get that rebound, yeah. and oh, you know, what, I can make this other kind of shot, and I can do this, and then you know, pretty soon you're realizing I got this. Yeah, and it's so
1: funny. Last night in preparation, we played a little bit of NBA, the latest NBA Live game. I, we couldn't even figure out how to play basketball in it. Like you yeah. started, it it's just like it's in, such in all a different fairness, world. we
0: were playing it on the iPad, which I'm not sure is intended to be the real thing. Yeah. But it was a it was a nightmare. Yeah. Anyway.
2: This is an ongoing challenge, not just with games but with technology in general. Is yeah. that the people that make it understand it really well because yep. they're the ones making it? Yeah. And they underestimate. The, the speed at which an average person can figure out yeah. what, what their intentions were, yeah. and everything's still too difficult.
0: There's that great aphorism in the gaming industry that a, a truly great game is easy to play but almost impossible to master. That it's you can Tetris. have this yeah. incredibly wide continuum of anybody can start playing, but you can't just beat it right away. Yeah,
2: The way I always put that is great games are simple, hot, and deep. You know you you, you mm. need to be able to instantly get engaged mm-hmm. and and then it's got to take full advantage of the powers of the medium to present itself. But then you've got to be able to keep going deeper. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I often would use the analogy of the ocean. you know you go you go down to the beach mm-hmm. and there's people right. of all sizes and shapes and ages. And there's kids playing in the sand. There are the little babies that can't get in the water yet. And then there's slightly older children that are playing hmm. you know, uh, at the ankle level. And then as you go further out, you eventually get all the way out to the dudes that are scuba diving. Yeah. And yeah, there's just no limit you know, to, t- to where that can yeah. go. And yeah, that's what that's you want that's, your game design yeah. to do. Wow. So, Everybody can use that water. Yeah. Yep.
1: So this game comes out. I believe this was the first, certainly athlete, but, but celebrity endorsement of a video game, period, ever,
2: right? Yeah, what what was uh, new about it, it was really the birth of EA Sports, even though we didn't call it EA Sports at the time. It was the first time that any kind of celebrity had appeared in a video game, mm-hmm. doing either being themselves or being an actor, even. Mm-hmm. So it was the, the first of its
1: kind in that and back way. back to the idea of you know, records and the packaging and the distribution. I mean, this is, this is just the next step in that process, right, in that breakthrough of making yeah, games mainstream. Yeah, and of course, I,
2: I really wanted to make games like football and baseball. Right. And, and we, we did a variety of things in the, from the very beginning. So we did a golf game really early that didn't have any licensing. It was called World Tour Golf. And we, uh, you know, fairly quickly got to uh, something involving driving. I I don't remember what the first one was, but there were a lot of things that we did. But Dr. J and Larry Bird was really the start of EA Sports. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do a team game, but with 8-bit technology, (laughs) it's kind of limited. And I thought, well, how about just two guys? 4K memory, (laughs) and you know, you know, yeah, hey, uh, Dr. J was a big hero of mine, and this is one of the ways you can learn about yourself is if you notice who your heroes are, they have values and passions and abilities that resonate with you because they're deep in you. And so I was, I was a huge fan of Joe Namath, a huge fan of Dr. J and those guys broke all the rules. You know, mm-hmm. they went to the rebel leagues. Yeah. 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 They got right. outrageously paid. They did crazy things with their hair. They, they, they were crazy, you know, like, you know, pioneering the use of white shoes and football and yeah, and you know, pretty, the, you know, the ABA with the multicolored basketball. basketball yep. And and then obviously their style of play, yeah. right? Just super creative. So these these guys were the yeah, you know, the rebels with that pirate swagger. Yeah. And that's pretty much something you see that's really common with good entrepreneurs. they yeah, got they've Steve got that swagger.
1: Example number one. Yeah. yeah.
2: So, anyway, so here I am. I'm a this guy, I worship this guy. And Dr. J happened to be one of the top one or two most popular athletes in the world at that time. You
0: see a lot of yourself in his sort of, uh, uh yeah. So, he's just
2: a hero to me. Yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm just, uh, delighted by the concept of see if I can do a <laughs> business deal with him. And we, we were working with a lawyer that knew his agent. Mm-hmm. And so we had a pathway in. I was able to present to Julius the idea that this is going to be something good for the world. This is a new medium. It's going to have all this educational value. And he had had kids already. And so I was able to help him frame it as Hmm. your kids are going to grow up through this and this is going to be a new thing. And one of the fabulous things about Julius is that he was already basically an ambassador for basketball. Yeah. And he understood that this was a new medium. That was going to allow basketball to happen in a new way. Yeah, that would, in fact, have educational value. And by the way, John Madden was attracted to the same thing. Yeah. Jo- John yeah, and I knew. Absolutely became true. Yeah, we we knew that players and coaches are going to use the football game that we're making because I mean, it's it's gonna be a when, I, when there. I was playing football in high school, this would have been 90,
1: 99 to two thousand three. My coach, who was, it was his first year as head coach, was my freshman year. And or my sophomore year, and he would assign. He would say, "Go on Madden, draw up the plays, like you know, create the plays on Madden that we're running in our playbook. Right? Input the stats for all of us. Here's what I think your stats are, and then like go home and learn the plays. Yeah, learn to read defenses.
2: Yeah, it was amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, uh, Julius agreed. Uh, He was paid twenty five thousand dollars and got a two point five percent royalty. Wow! And then, uh, as, as soon as he was on, we offered Larry Bird the same contract, mm-hmm. and that made it easy to get him on board. Wow! And Chris, uh, w- what a perfect rivalry! I mean, they were they were already <laughs> banging heads, and they're both of them played on great championship caliber yeah. teams, and and then it was a matter of you know make, making a uh, design that worked well f- for what the platforms could do. Then, wow! So
1: way back to the beginning of the story, football is always your dream. What came next after that? After after you saw that this well, could that, work?
2: the the Doctor J game, it was pretty successful for us, and it made me think, yeah, this is really going to work. Mm-hmm. And I thought, OK, well, then let, let's let do football because that's what I, at that time, cared about the most.
0: Yeah, that's got to be quite validating because while it seems obvious now that sports video games are, I mean, a huge and ridiculous market, at that time, it wasn't even clear that, like, it could work because no one had really done it before. And so it had to be incredibly validating that you, you ship that title, like literally ship that title, and people play it and like it, and you get good feedback. I mean, that had to be this, like, sigh of relief, almost. Yeah,
2: and again, you're, you're noticing that there's an audience that wants a more authentic sports experience that's, that's an, a more accurate simulation of the real thing. Yeah. Now, as compared to, say, the other treatment that it was generally getting, right. where it's like a, a form of amusement. Mm-hmm. So Pong is a great game. It's a great form of amusement, and you could say that it has something in common with tennis, But it's not a simulation, Mm right, of of the game of tennis, right? Anyway, I I I didn't want to have some simple action arcade mechanic that allowed you to swing at a pitch and hit a baseball or uh, run run around as a football player, Mm -hmm. and have it and have it not be the real thing. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, with football, you got twenty two guys running around the field. So (laughs) I I didn't realize at that moment, this is like nineteen eighty four because 16-bit technology it's it's already coming yeah mm-hmm. but it's, it's gonna, not there yet but it's going to be a, it turns out it was going to be a while and and 8-bit wasn't really quite good enough but now by the so we we thought okay this will take a year and of course it took 4 <laughs> i knew that yeah if, to make a really effective uh, game you're going to have to do it literally like a football play mm-hmm. where the offense is at the bottom the defense is at the top and you're moving up the screen And then, of course, you're going to want to try to present that with uh, a little bit of a 3D view that's a little bit like it's behind the quarterback. (laughs) Which,
0: amazingly, like two uh, incredible things about this. One, still the visual metaphor used to this day in the most popular gaming franchise or one of the most popular gaming franchises in the world. And two, they literally fly a camera now on the field (laughs) That 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 is that angle.
2: Yeah, that's actually my favorite thing about the evolution of sports games is the way the broadcasters and the game companies yeah. keep referencing each other, yeah. and they get inspired by each other's ideas. Yeah. So they're sort of co-evolving. Oh, there was—I really, think it was—it really really cool
1: was, was, it. Uh, it was a year or two ago in a game. I wish I'd written down who did it. A wide receiver ran parallel to the end zone to run out time on the clock, which is a Madden move. Oh, this right. happened in Dude, an NFL Madden game. Madden 2000, I did that all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but it, for the first time, it happened in a real NFL game. Wow. Uh, it's amazing. Okay, so this is 1984. The technology's not there yet. John Madden, obviously, we'll, we'll get into, but he was not your first choice, right, for the football version, uh, for the football celebrity endorser, right?
2: Yeah, in, at that at that point, I was... I was thinking, you know, um, maybe maybe we don't have to pay a royalty because there isn't any one athlete that can really represent football. And I could work with a coach and that would actually help me fill in gaps in my own knowledge. But, you know, maybe, maybe we just pay a coach a consulting fee and it doesn't have to be. We we can just make up our own brand and mm-hmm. own the brand. But I thought, you know, if we're going to if we're going to have a brand name and we're gonna be paying a royalty, who's the biggest brand, human being? And I instantly thought of Madden because, look, the guy had already won a Super Bowl and proven to be a Hall of Fame caliber coach. He'd been a player also. And then he'd become an Emmy award-winning, multiple Emmy award-winning broadcaster. And he was in the middle of a what would be a very long career. So the guy was always going to be yeah, on TV. Yeah, yeah. And he's the ace hardware man. Yeah. He's in the Miller Lite beer commercials, breaking through barriers. And, yeah. And
1: of course, I, I mean, I think probably most listeners don't uh, remember this, but uh, his Hall of Fame coaching career was with the Raiders and Al Davis, you know, the just win baby era. You know, he
2: was, he checked all the
1: boxes in credibility. Yes.
2: Yes. So anyway, I thought, okay, well, let's just go to the top of the food chain and talk to them. And by, by this time, we had enough contact with enough agents that it was easy to find out, okay, who, who do I talk to? And I had, I had a flight in New York City to meet with his agent. She agreed there was a good proposition. And then she sold John on it. And not too long after that, it got turned over to a, a more junior agent who really became John's kind of personal agent, this guy Sandy Montague who has worked with John for decades. And we uh, signed the deal. And then at that point, okay, we have a signed agreement, so we need to start actually doing the work. And that's when uh, a couple of colleagues and I flew to Denver and okay. got on the train. Wow. Because John
1: famously doesn't fly.
2: <laughs> yeah. And we, he, he wasn't at the, at the Madden Cruiser yet. He was still taking Amtrak. He eventually got tired of the limited train schedules. <laughs> But we basically got on a train, and the train uh, went west. And for two days, all we did day and night was talk football. Wow. That's so amazing.
0: And so uh, John insisted on something that that the technology arguably couldn't do yet, and that was put 11 players on the field because his strong feeling was that if we're going to do a football game, we're going to do an authentic football game. How did that sort of negotiation go? And then how did you guys get to work on, on that requirement? Well, you know, like the
2: Dr. J game. I was the designer, Mm -hmm. and to come into that meeting with John, I I had already done a lot of work on a design. I had probably at least a 60-page design document already for an 11-on-11 football Mm -hmm. game, Hmm. but we were uh, worried about how it would work on an 8-bit machine. And as a player, I was already familiar with Skeleton, which is where you take the guards and the tackles off the field. Right, you right, don't right. worry about the the trench warfare and all the right. blocking seven yeah. on seven. And you know in, in that kind of seven on seven framework, you're still running the ball. You just don't have as many blockers and tacklers in the equation, and, mm-hmm. and you've got all the pass patterns and all, all the passing game stuff and all the open field stuff. So it's, it's 80-20 football. <laughs> yeah. And to go into this, that two-day meeting with John, I had to prepare a list of questions. And this, it was just page after page after page of questions. And I think the question about, "Hey, what do you think about skeleton?" It was like question number five or something. <laughs> and I, I wanted to bring it up because I just thought, "Hey, you know, it just this, just is, this is just an idea. It wasn't something I was committed to. It was just one of the I many see. things I had to ask him about."
1: How violent was his
2: reaction? <laughs> well, here's the thing about John. You have to understand, if you're an NFL coach, uh, there are 60 very large men who could probably just grab your head and pop it like a grape. (laughs) And some of them are on steroids, and so they're sometimes really angry. (laughs) So you have to control those people. So how the heck do you actually command and control those kinds of people? And what do you find with John is here's a guy who's a big guy. He was an offensive lineman. And he's got all the dominance traits of a highly masculine human being. And that include the fact that every third word out of his mouth is the F word. And and yet he's an incredibly intelligent guy and a brilliant strategic thinker and a brilliant operational thinker. Yeah. So like if you were building a giant factory in China, he would be a great guy to go run that factory because he's that kind of a well, then he could see. Thinker. He
1: could see, you know, obviously his, his you approached his agent, and the agent said there was got a but like he became so involved, he could see that this was a project worth doing, yeah oh, and oh, worth to- doing oh, right. totally,
2: but that's where I began to realize uh, why he was so good at what he does uh, because the guy is really, really smart and of course great strategic thinker I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples in a moment, but it was uh, it was it was very clear that he knew how to function well in football because of this combination of uh, abilities uh, that he had, and he was he was always very blunt always very direct. So the, the, the whole thing comes up about skeleton. and he just says, well, that's not football. I mean, look, that's all he had to say. Is that, okay, next question. <laughs> so wow. it's funny. The, the media has blown it up into this big I was going to say, thing. yeah, my
0: research made it this like, seminal moment of the negotiation.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it, it really wasn't because none of us really want – all of us wanted 11 on 11. Right. Yeah, And, and he, he just said, yeah, no, we're, we're all, we, all, we all want the real thing. We, yeah, we're all going, yeah, yeah, we all yeah, want the yeah, real yeah. thing, so uh, we'll just suck it up and huh. figure out how to make, make it work. Okay. And ultimately we did. I mean, that 8-bit Apple version that was the 8-bit uh, product – they also got onto the IBM PC, and that came out in 1988. Came right? out in 88, and the, the it, it won awards. And the guys that reviewed that game said, "This is kind of unbelievable that this thing actually works at all." Mm. <laughs> you know, and people were really impressed. Like, how did they manage to do this on an 8-bit machine? It was, well, but of course, it took forever. I was going to say a
0: lot of blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, the the um, do you want to share the story of the nickname of uh, of Madden?
2: Yeah. Well, t- towards the end of that phase, uh, the auditors. Uh, it, oh. They were doing an annual audit of the company financials. They came to me and said, "Hey, I uh, just want to make sure you guys, you know that the advance that you paid to Madden it has no asset value because we've decided that you're never going to recoup it. Whoa. So we're going to cause you know in your financials you're it's going to be written the, off wow. as a as a complete waste of money. Basically, it's an expense. It has no asset value. And I'm going uh-huh." <laughs> And I'm saying, it's interesting, why am I not hearing this from my CFO or, <laughs> or some of the other executives? And, and they're that's, too scared to tell and you. That, and that's when I learned that, yeah, none of them wanted to tell me. <laughs> and that's where the auditors were sent directly to me to tell oh, me. Man. And wow. that's when I learned that, yeah, they actually call, yeah, Trip, they actually call this project Trip's Folly. Wow. <laughs> wow. And by, wow. by the way, uh, Walt Disney had, had that happen to him, Walt's Folly. Was the film Snow White? Oh wow! Which of course <laughs> started at all started I mean, yeah yeah. It transformed but that, that Snow White was the first full length yeah. animated, animated film, feature. Yeah, and everybody thought you can't do that. It's got to be a short. Yeah, and Walt says, nah, "I don't think so."
0: Meanwhile, I think as of twenty thirteen, Madden had done four billion in revenue as a franchise and has only continued to grow from there. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So that was a pretty good folly. Yeah, well,
1: sometimes follies. I mean, even. Foreshadowing for a future episode, but Snow White had a very large impact on uh, Airbnb. Yes, these things are sometimes worth pursuing. So the game finally comes out for the Apple II, like you said, get ported to the IBM PC, but that wasn't the market, and that wasn't what made Madden, and, that, and frankly, that wasn't what made EA. It was in 1992. Years later, the game comes out for the Sega Genesis, but there was, in our research, it, it seems like this was the pivotal moment for EA. As a company, can you tell us about about how you go from PC game publisher to the console market? And then going from at IPO, I think the market cap was 60 million to then 2 billion a couple of years later.
2: Yes. So in the mid 80s, the whole industry is struggling to grow because the console market had imploded with the collapse of Atari, yep. and that had acquired kind of a bad image and a bad mm-hmm. uh, reputation with the public.
0: And was that because of intense competition? Why did Atari collapse?
2: Well, they were heavily promoting something that had very limited capacity. Mm-hmm. So it was at some point going kind to of seem like a hula hoop because it yeah, pretty much yeah. was. And th- they didn't they didn't understand And the that.
1: NES came out, what, like 86, 87?
2: Yeah, so the the NES had come out in Japan, and they brought it to America in the mid '80s. And the the problem there was that the guys making the personal computers didn't care that much about graphics and sound, yeah, mm. which mattered a great deal with games. And of course, that equipment it was fairly expensive. and And then Nintendo comes in, and they're offering a a, a pretty good multimedia platform for a mm-hmm. hundred bucks. Yeah. And and yet it's a very different business model where Nintendo controls everything, everything. and there's no creative freedom, and the manufacturing cost is really high because you have to make circuit boards car and chips. Yep, yep. You know, it's it it, it it's not the uh, incredible efficiency of say an optical disc. Nintendo
1: and, didn't view maybe even their own first parties they did, but they, even that they didn't view game developers as artists.
2: <laughs> that's right. In fact, uh, they they knew that about uh, Miyamoto-san. Uh, yeah. You know, they had their own brilliant. Uh, People that have, in fact, always made great first-party games, but the third parties were—they were happy to let some third parties tag along as long as uh, they got overpaid by them uh, for permission. (laughs) And yeah, it 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 never really worked out all that well for anybody to be a third-party Nintendo licensee. That's that's why pretty much forever it's been about for Nintendo's platforms. It's always been more about the first-party games that Nintendo's making. But uh, I was really worried that. Uh, There was a hardware problem between the business model of Nintendo and the lack of multimedia features. And so I'm already thinking Mm -hmm. about that. And I I, I was already a really big fan of the uh, Motorola MC68000 processor because Mm -hmm. Steve and I had picked it for Apple's uh, next-gen machines. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, when we started EA, the first development systems we bought were Sun workstations with that processor, and then Coin-Op Machines started using that processor. And we licensed mm-hmm. games like Marvel Madness from Atari, right. Coin-Op. Right. And we were able to port it yeah. to the Commodore Amiga, the Atari ST, which also came out in the mid-'80s with that processor. So we were very familiar with that processor. And we find out that Sega, which had been limited to only 1% market share of 8-bit consoles because yeah, Nintendo dominated. the master dominated, system
1: that they had, yeah.
2: They were going to come to market first with the first 16-bit console using that processor with a sound chip, with a graphics chip, and a price under $200. And I thought, wow, uh, we've we've built a tremendous arsenal of 16-bit technology, tools, and game brands and they just don't line up with the right platform. This could be that platform. Right. Mm-hmm. This is
1: the this is the iPhone
2: moment, right? The and market. the funny and the funny thing about it is that Nintendo was so successful, they had 98% market share. So all of the third party game developers, they either refused to do Nintendo because the cost structure and the risk and the right. controls. They just said, I don't like that and I'm yeah. just not going to do it. I'll stick with this little business I have on the IBM PC or whatever. So they either did that. Like the guys at Broderbund. Yeah, yeah. Or they said, well, uh, if I'm going to be in the console market, it's going to have to be on Nintendo because they have all the market share. And there's really only one company that had a pretty good ride that way, which was a claim. Right, right, right. And, and even they eventually went under because of all the constraints about the console side. And there were some other big Japanese companies like Konami that had a pretty good run, but even, even they faded. Yep. So it, it just the being a third party uh, in that business model has never really worked out uh, that well. Anyway, so I'm looking for a different kind of answer and I think okay, uh, it could be this machine. So it's coming out in the fall of 1988 in Japan and so we we buy one at retail or buy a few at retail and bring it back to the United States.
1: And Sega's ambition was to Recreate the Nintendo ecosystem for themselves, right?
2: Well, I didn't know that yet. <laughs> oh, we okay. didn't know what they were going to do because they had they had not had a third party program for their eight ah. bit machine, so maybe mm-hmm. they're going to make, maybe they're still going to do that. and They would just have their own, own games. So we get the machine, and we're thinking, well, wow, yeah, this thing's pretty badass. Uh, we really like what it can do, and and then I th- then I said, well, we're let's reverse engineer it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and let's make sure we do that legally, correctly, so we don't infringe copyright law. And then we'll be able to make our own games for it. We don't have to be a licensee. Mm-hmm. Wow. And th- that's when, basically, I decided that it was time to take the company public because I thought, yeah, you know, they're going to sue us. Yeah. And mm. we're going to probably be tied up in court for a while. <laughs> um, we need some more ammo uh, before we go into that battle. Just a well, mezzanine isn't going to What did cut your cut
1: board think about this, by the way?
2: Was, well, it, it took a little while to get everybody <laughs> behind it. <laughs> were they fired up? Like, Did they see the potential here, too? or? You know, I think uh, there's two layers to that. First of all, you got to you got to get the management team uh, in yep. support of it. And when, once the management team believes it's a good adventure, then you go uh, pitch the board because the board the board wants to make sure sh- you know they're going to look around the room and go is everybody in on this mm-hmm. or because you know why would they support it if they can tell there's there's factions in the management team that don't uh, believe it's a good idea. And you know, thankfully everybody was in and and off we went. And I compare this to what uh, Lawrence of Arabia did <laughs> by attacking Aqaba from the rear. And this was a turning point in World War One in the battle with the Turks. Yeah. And they they uh, did basically what everybody thought was impossible to do. And by the way, that's still my favorite movie. And I've actually been to several of the locations where wow. Lawrence, the real Lawrence, was. And I've been wow. to several of the locations where they made the movie. So I'm a complete fanatic about it. Oh, cool. But at any rate. Uh, we uh, embarked on that adventure, and there was some really heroic work done by Jim Nichols and Steve Hayes and David Maynard to go into a uh, what's called a clean room. And you can't even take anything in there with you. You, you go in there, and you've got right. the equipment, and you can't bring— This is to, to reverse engineer the Genesis. Yeah, you can't yeah. bring tools in with you. You go into that room, and the room is essentially sealed, and then you have to create tools from scratch— and figure out a way to unravel the mystery of how that machine, that black box, how does it work? And it took a year. Wow. So they're off doing this for a year, and they're doing that heroically knowing that they won't get to be able to make games for it. And here's the quirk of the copyright law, is that they're going to need to use a disassembler to take an existing game and look at the code of that game on a screen Mm -hmm. and... They're violating wow. copyright They took
1: law. the game down to assembly code? and
2: Well, if you're, you're trying to understand, what is this machine doing? Yeah. <laughs> you're going to need to look at images of what's in memory. Yeah. Wow. Okay, now you're looking at something that is being oh. visually represented on the screen. A copy yeah. of what's in memory is wow. being shown on the screen. That is a copyright infringing act. Yeah. However, in the context of a clean room, uh, it it's covered under fair use. That if you're just, if all you're trying to do is figure out how this black box works, that's right. okay. But if you exploit that information right. to make software for that machine, now it's not a fair use anymore. Right. So uh, Steve Hayes, uh, David Maynard, Jim Nichols, these are guys that had made games for it's electronic like arts. Wow. They know they're not going to be the ones making games this for the Sega like Genesis. A, this is like a Star Wars movie. <laughs> yeah. oh, these guys are the greatest heroes in the history of electronic arts. Wow. And Jim Nichols. Always a serious alcoholic, uh, dead at a very young age. Wow. And I, I'll i just treasure this guy forever because he was the one who stuck with that and did the heavy lifting in the end wow. that figured it out and made that sacrifice. And it, it still to this day kind of makes me want to start crying. Wow. Mm. Oh, my goodness. And it just uh, – what those guys did. Anyway, it, just, it was going on for months. Uh, we knew that the uh, – uh, product was going to come to the U.S. in the fall of 1989. And we're thinking, well, hey, we're beginning to figure this thing out. And we don't see any reason why we can't make our own games for it because it's not like Nintendo. Nintendo had a little security chip.
1: Yeah, they've always talked, been good at
2: DRM. You know, there's there's a security chip on the cartridge and it's handshaking with a security chip that's in the console. Yeah. Saying, are you a legitimate Nintendo cartridge? Yes or, right. yes or no. And in order for you to do that, you would have to infringe a patent. mm So we actually Hmm. did work reverse engineering the Nintendo, but then we realized that, you know, because of the patent, uh, you know, we'll get our ass kicked. So let's not do that. And as a result, you know, EA did make a few Nintendo games, but we were never able to really put enough attention on Nintendo. There wasn't a way to make enough money. So meanwhile, we're kind of all in on the Sega Genesis, and we're worried that, like Nintendo, so Nintendo had released that that console, the Famicom, in Japan with no security chip, it was the American version. The NES. That, that introduced uh, that chip. I see. And we're worried, well, what if Sega does the same thing? Well, they didn't. Wow. So, okay, the coast is clear. So wow. their
0: entire mechanism, just to like really make sure I have it, to make sure that their games were the only ones that would run on the platform was to just not publish any documentation on how anyone could
2: publish for the platform. That's right. But since you it's guys— It's a black box, and you only get the information if you sign their license agreement. Apple does that to this day. Yep. Right. Although the Supreme Court has recently had a few things to say about that. <laughs> yeah. And
0: also there's there's iPhone jailbreakers. So famously, Craig Hockenberry with Twitterific for the first iPhone before yep. there was an app store figured out, reverse engineered, similar to you guys, what the API structure was to write code for it. Like you guys in figuring out and reverse engineering the black box were able to write games for it and then they would just work.
2: Yeah. So uh, we, we got it all figured out. And then we started uh, getting development teams started making games. Wow. So that was starting in the mm-hmm. fall of 89, uh, and that's when we went public. And we're ready for the war, which is going to start <laughs> the next year. When you the got, first you games got come fresh
0: up. $8 million in your pocket.
2: <laughs> so here we go. And then by the spring of 1990, we've got games ready to come to market. And this is wow. where uh, some of the first games like Budokan... And yeah. Populous, Oh yeah! Wow. And and by this time, by the way, I was talking to third-party game publishers that where we handled their distribution, and competitors. I'm going around talking to a lot of people saying, "Hey, this forming is what, an alliance. This is what we're doing. And if you want to be partners with us, uh, mm. there's various ways we can partner with you to have us all operate something. It's a little bit like what Epic is doing now, challenging Google, the Steam Store, and yeah. Google Play. Yeah. Yep. And I'm really so delighted to see that, by the way. I mean, I just, I love what they're doing.
0: Yeah, this seems to be a theme in in, in your career is figuring out how to um, allow the the creators of the games to have that more direct relationship. Yeah, and honestly,
2: it's really simple. What I've always been passionate about is Mm -hmm. the power of the medium and the freedom of creative people to exploit it Mm -hmm. in a variety of ways that the public can have access to. Mm-hmm. So uh, in, anybody that wants to come along and choke that to death and control it and prevent certain things from being viable, yeah, not a fan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and, it ends up. It, you're right. It
1: ends up like in a creative art form like this. It ends up killing. It. I mean, look at uh, look no further than the state of gaming in the app store. Uh, you know, Fortnite being a notable exception over the last. Yeah, you're right five because you, you have a success yeah.
2: rate now. It's like one in a thousand. Yep, mm-hmm. that,
0: of apps that actually make money. Yep. Is your offer to all these other game publishers joining your alliance, hey, we've effectively recreated a software development kit or we've yes. created one and, and you can have access to this amazing and, documentation? And the, here's the funny
2: part of the story is that we're getting closer and closer to coming to market and we're actually out making sales calls. Retailers are placing orders and we're ready to roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a CES show in Chicago that's going to be in uh, June and that's going to be the big unveil. hmm And about, I don't know, 45 days before that, I thought, you know, I'm really committed to this plan. And at the same time, as a CEO of a public company and as a competent executive, maybe I ought to go talk to Sega and see if we could actually maybe partner. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, I don't really want to do that. And I said, well, yeah, but you really really ought to do that. (laughs) Anyway, so I called up the chairman of Sega who actually is the founder of Sega. Sega was wow. started by David Rosen. He started it in Japan. Well, he he had been a, a sur- American serviceman after the war wow. and he had noticed the uh, soldiers after the war that were assigned to be there. They had a lot of free time with nothing to do, and there was mm. demand for like pinball machines yeah, and stuff the like that. pachinko machines, right? And so uh, Sega was actually one of the f- first makers of you know mechanical you know uh, games to go on a military bases. Oh, wow! So oh. that's how Sega actually got started. I did not know that. I just thought it was a, a Japanese company. And then, of course, then it became a, a pretty big business uh, globally, and eventually uh, Nakayama-san, who was the leading distributor. In into the channels in Japan. He ended up uh, uh, buying out the company. Wow. And uh, D- David Rosen had actually pre- had sold it to an American company before that. And so he was out of it. And nakayama brought him back in as chairman. Wow. Uh, anyway, huh. So I called up David. And he's basically saying, are you crazy? Are you nuts? <laughs> You're running a public company? Uh, we're going to destroy your stock price when the news hits about us suing you. <laughs> and uh, how do you know we can't just change the machine to make sure all your games don't work? I mean, he's, he's just hitting me with every possible threat. And you're sitting there laser-focused in a game of chicken being like, yeah, I,
0: did, I just don't think you can.
2: Pretty much. <laughs> and I'm just saying, well, you know, hey, yeah, maybe we should get together and talk about it. <laughs> all right, so we, we end up having this meeting. And it, it starts us down the road of this process of, of discussing you know, ways that we could actually uh, partner. Mm-hmm. And unbeknownst to me, they're all terrified because they're planning on having this third-party program. In fact, they'd been socializing that with me for a year. Mm-hmm. I've been having these uh, rope-a-dope kind of conversations with them, <laughs> where they would come in and try to excel me on becoming a third-party licensee for the Sega Genesis, and I would have to pretend that I think it's kind of interesting, but they're not. We're ready to do it yet. And uh, meanwhile, I got guys in the next room, you know, reverse <laughs> engineer our machine, and they don't know. And what are terms you know, to, to become an official licensee? Well, that was there was a lot of discussion about that, as you can imagine. <laughs> So my idea was uh, to pay them very little. <laughs> <laughs> <And> their idea <laughs> was to pay them a lot. <laughs> I basically was willing to pay two bucks a unit up to a million units, and then not pay them anything else.
0: And those units are games per yeah. per disc per cartridge yeah. sold.
2: They actually, it turns out, were really worried. That I was having, they, they, they had heard about, they're, they're out trying to convince other people to right. do third party deals. <laughs> and they're all saying, like, hey, Trip well, just came to see me. <laughs> a, a trip made me a better offer. So if you really, but they're all saying no to me. I mean, none of those people oh. uh, wanted, wanted to do it. They were too terrified. But they're also saying no to Sega. They're just playing me against Sega. They're using uh-huh. me to try to help improve their position yeah. with Sega. And Sega's actually worried that I'm going to tank their third party program. I did not know that. I find find that out much later. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm thinking, I don't have to make this deal with SEGA. This this is the thing about any kind of negotiation. You need to have leverage. Mm -hmm. And being able to be committed to a position helps you get leverage. Because the other side thinks, yeah, okay, that's what they're committed to. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I was fully convinced we didn't need to have a license. So there's no way they can force me to get a license. I believe I'd be happy to go to court instead. So they're beginning to catch on to that. And we get down to the point where, okay, the only, we're pretty much in agreement on everything else. The only things at issue is they would like to get $2 per unit forever. Mm-hmm. And I want to cap it at, at, at million. a million units. Mm-hmm. And everyone on my management team is saying, "Trip, you've done a fabulous job. Take the $2 <laughs> per unit and forget about the cap. And I'm saying, you know, I pretty much know that uh, they're going to sue us. And I, and I really am convinced that what we're doing is completely legally correct. And I don't mind playing this out. And I know that they'll sue us, and we'll be prepared, and we'll go through document discovery, and they'll see us engage with that. And then we'll be moving towards going to court. And they're going to reach a point where they realize that we're going to fight it out all the way to the end and that they can't beat us. And then they'll drop the uh, $2 per unit thing and settle for the cap. And I'm willing to play it out that way, even if it takes six months. Did they realize the power of Madden football at this <laughs> point? No, already? we'll come back to Madden. Anyway, I'm having this conversation with my staff and they're all rolling their eyes. And lo and behold, I get on a plane, I go to CES, and David Rosen and our lawyers hunker down, and they agreed wow. to what I was what I wanted. So we we never had to go to court. Wow. And th- again, uh I don't really. I didn't really understand at the time uh, that I had so much leverage because they were afraid that CES is going to start and we're going to make this news and we're going to blow up their third-party, the third-party program. program. Right. They're launching soon. I already knew I had no program with others. <laughs> they apparently didn't know that. Oh my god! Just flying right in with so a bluff uh, the whole time. I was, I was just a little lucky there. Wow. And didn't have to go through that harangue of six months of the, tr- the stock price getting trashed. But, but by the way, the, the when the, when EA went public, the market cap was eighty million. Okay, yeah. sorry, but then it dropped to sixty million. Ah, and and this persisted. I think we actually hit bottom later that year. So here we are announcing we're going to do Sega, but the the market's going. Okay. Who the hell is Sega? Yeah. Sega's got no <laughs> position in this business. We don't know if that's going to lose them money or what. You know, nobody's talking about it. And then we, we just started cranking out better quarterly results, astronomically better quarterly results wow. for the next mm-hmm. several quarters. And it took another, I don't know, maybe a year or two. And, the, and, and, and the company to... was worth $2 billion. I mean, wow. it, it just really transformed in the next year or two.
0: And was that Madden for Sega that just created all that revenue?
2: Well, uh, we already had Madden almost finished by the time that negotiation mm-hmm. uh, wrapped up. And it was going to ship, I think, in September of 1990, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it was it was not too long after that show that Sega contacted us and said, you know, it turns out that our developers that are making our football game, which, the, which they had made a deal with Joe Montana to be their right, own, right, right. Uh, platform uh, spokesperson yeah. to yep. promote their whole uh, product line, and they thought, well, hey, part of their deal with him... Being their television spokesperson included putting his name on a game, which is hard. Like you guys. Oh, so
1: he was spokesperson for the Genesis console.
2: Yes. Wow. And their entire uh, business. So they had they had a studio outside studio, a developer making that football game. Oh man! And they found out that that game was going to miss Christmas. Oh. So they 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 contacted me and said, "Hey." So Nakayama-san gets on the phone with me and say and says. uh, for the good of the platform that uh, we all depend on here, you need to make a sacrifice for the team by taking Madden and changing it into Montana football, <laughs> and we'll pay you some money for that, and then we'll all have a successful Christmas. And uh, at least one of my high-ranking executives said, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. And I looked at him, and I said, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> we have no the goose. Way. Like, we have the goose. We've it's already about taken him. this game to our uh, best uh, r- uh, retail customers. They've, we've already yeah. got thousands of orders for the thing. This is going to be a, a key franchise for us. Uh, you know, I've been waiting years for, for this. I'm not going to give it to them. right? And then, and then I thought about it and go, well, wait a minute. We can do both. So I go back to Sega and I say, okay, here's the deal. Huh. In six weeks, we're going to hand you the game. That's going to be Joe, Joe Montana, Montana football. football. Yeah. You're going to give us $2 million in cash. I got my $2 million back. <laughs> <laughs> and we literally <laughs> cranked out this different game in six weeks <laughs> by taking Madden and basically dumbing it down. So, look, I, I had put the playbook together. <laughs> so the Sega version had, I think, 135 plays, the Montana had 13. So wow. It took out 90% yep. of the plays. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then instead of the uh, sort of half 3D camera Top view. Top down, yeah, yeah. Like Jim Simmons, the engineer that built this uh, Genesis version uh, he, he basically invented this idea of the the fake 3D yeah, the, angle. The 16-bit 3D. With oh. a scaling of the sprites yeah. so that it, it looked like the players were a little more like right. 3D objects. So he could just remove were, that scaling the factor. The safeties back we, at the uh, Well, yeah. uh, in, in Japan, by the way, the sports games were known as big head games. Yeah. Where, where it was a little That's cartoony right. with That's a right. baseball player with a really big head. So, okay, we're going to give him that. Cause I knew that, <laughs> I knew oh, that didn't sell in America. And and then we're going to give them a really plain 2D top-down camera view. Wow! And then and then we took out some other stuff and it felt okay. Now it's not threatening. It's not going to interfere. It's not really going to. It's going to be an arcade thing. And, Of course, what we did with Madden was, was a great market compromise. Is we had a meeting of the minds in in the developers community around Madden where we said, okay, we wanted to have the the simulation accuracy. But it's got to be more of an arcade game, mm-hmm. and this is an audience. Uh, they're, they're, the players are going to be younger. They're going to be more interested in the action side of it. Mm-hmm. So the design had to take that into account. It was, it was, it was really a great uh, design. And, again, I think what Jim Simmons did in building that first uh, version was a- among the, the most amazing work I've seen done wow. in my career. And that engine that he built was so good that we immediately turned it into the hockey game. And that was the debut oh, yeah. of our first hockey
1: game. Huh. I remember that hockey? Game. Wow. Huh.
2: Did Madden and Montana
1: ship at the same time?
2: Yeah, so they both came out for Christmas wow. and they were two of the five best-selling games that Christmas. Wow. And nobody knew that under the hood <laughs> that Montana, Montana was, thing was 98% of the same code base. Wow.
1: That's incredible. Uh, and that really built EA into into everything that it is today, right? Of uh, the console game, you know, Madden just grows year after year after year and has the beauty of the sports season that you can release a new version every year and make it better every year.
2: Um yeah, that was one thing that uh, I had grown up uh, playing that game Stratomatic, right, right. where every year you got new cards because the players have changed teams and they're, they they had performed differently and their stats are different and you want the the real thing. You know, mm-hmm. therefore you want you want the the current players. At their current levels of ability, mm-hmm. and so that was just, was just a given. So after the the new first, hot rookies
1: that just got drafted, out yeah. Of every, ever since the
2: first version of Madden had come out, we had started doing a player a player disc every year, mm. and it was a little awkward with uh, uh, consoles because there there was no way to do an add on later. Right. Everything had to be on the cartridge. So the first version, you know, it had neither an NFL license nor a players license. <laughs> And we were we we're kind of faking our way through this for a while, like the, that very first version of Madden,
0: which now is a very expensive license,
2: uh, indeed. Although it's you know, it's a it's a actually a fair deal because totally, yeah. what uh, what EA was able to do is build a brand and build a market position, so that they had some leverage in that negotiation. Mm.
0: Just an unbelievable. Several times here in acquired, as David says, uh, turns on a knife point, or as I'll <laughs> say, turns on a knife point. Pull the e-brake, cut the wheel to the left. I mean, you guys just came out with flying colors. The building blows up behind you. You know, you you run out. It's like the end of an action movie. And well, you
2: know, it's it, it's true. It really was that kind of pivot. But before we even did any of that. The company had been profitable with revenue growth for the prior five years, and
0: yeah. So you guys have been profitable like since you started, right?
2: Well, no, no. The first couple of years, you got to invest and spend money, and you know, build build distribution. And we got, you know, we got fairly close in 1984 to running out of money. And it was right around that time that it kind of tilted enough, and Mm. you know, it, it was profitable in the fourth quarter of. Of uh, 1984, and then profitable after that. Got it. So it was already a successful business. But yeah, in terms of unlocking an order of magnitude jump in the value, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, this is the part of our show where we ask what would have happened otherwise. So can you talk a little bit about the calculus on why you decided to go public and did you consider not going public? Because many a gaming company, you know, you could have been private for a long time, especially if you're making money and you don't need to take any further investment.
2: I've always believed in being kind of egalitarian Mm -hmm. about my companies. So basically everybody's going to get stock options no Mm -hmm. matter what they do. Mm -hmm. And we're going to try to figure out how to be shared owners of the business and have everybody feel like, yeah, there's something in it for me to have a long-term view here and to stick around and to go through the tough times and get that reward in addition to the other rewards. And you can't really do that and stay private because there's just not going to be – a sufficiently liquid marketplace uh, for the shares unless you either sell the company or you go public. Yeah. I have been there mm-hmm. for three IPOs, two of which I led. So it's not it's not foreign territory for me to think, yeah. f- to think this way, but not everybody in Silicon Valley wants to give shares to everybody. In fact, uh, there's a lot of big tech companies like Oracle, I think maybe 20% of employees have stock options. Mm. You know, big companies maybe have a uh, ESOP, you know, employee stock mm-hmm. ownership plan, but you're not going to get very much. I've just always believed in everybody sharing in that. And and then you've got to have some long-term plan for how you're going to get to liquidity.
0: Were you facing pressure from shareholders saying, hey, we really should, you know, it's been however many years, seven years, seven, I think seven years. we really should think about returning capital to, to Yeah, Koya well, these, these three and...
2: IPOs that I was around, Apple went. At a time when it was perfectly appropriate for Apple to do it, yeah, and it was a mixed blessing because it clearly changed the culture of the company in a negative way, but it really did help put the company on the map and give it plenty of uh, mm-hmm. resources. I think Electronic Arts it took too long, mm-hmm. and yeah, it was it was seven years, and it, it was painful. For some employees, you know, there was a lot of frustration and disappointment right. and a lot of it had to do with the economy not being in the right place in the mm. mid to late 80s. And then, of course, 3DO later went probably way too early. Mm-hmm. But it was almost like the company had no shot at even remotely trying to do what it was going to do if it didn't go out right. uh, and, ahead of things. And this
0: is your uh, gaming hardware business later that, that you started after EA.
2: Yeah, it actually was started at EA. and I mean, it was kind of a skunk works inside That's EA. That's right. And then it ended up spinning out as a separate company. And it's a very sad, sordid story because it was a very ambitious idea. And I I had been on such a run of uh, success that, again, that's where your greatest strength turns out to be your greatest weakness because (laughs) you think you're – infallible or invincible at that point mm-hmm. and you don't realize that you're finally pushing over that edge. Mm. You know? And you know I, I uh, when, when I think about that concept, it reminds me of uh, these great drivers like Niki Lauda and Edderton Santa, yeah, where yeah. they really know how to push a car to that very edge where just a little bit more and you're, you're gonna turn it into an airplane and it's gonna fly uh, <laughs> yeah. off the course. and that's what both of those guys did. Mm. And they did it on on uh, wet tracks. Yeah. when they in theory could have known better yeah and, but they but they knew how good they were and they knew that they were really good at managing that edge until you until you don't mm-hmm. yeah. and yeah. you know so 3 do was that kind of an experience for me and i really had a genuine interest in getting a platform out there that had that could solve all of these uh, issues that were creating these bottlenecks on the hardware side and holding developers back and holding the public interest back mm-hmm of course, all that stuff ended up uh, getting sorted out, you know, on its own, yeah. uh, somewhat longer time frame. But probably the uh, most classic mistake I've made the most in my career is being too early. Hmm. Just uh, a, lot of, a lot of us entrepreneurs, we see something, yeah. when we envision that product, and then we don't appreciate the fact that it's going to take a while to educate the audience yeah. And have, well, them be, have them be willing to pay for it.
0: Well, don't be too hard on yourself. I mean, we wouldn't be sitting here today if you didn't have the discipline to to go and take a job at Apple for years before 1982.
2: Yeah. It's just uh, – it's an interesting issue for entrepreneurs yeah. to figure yeah. out what is the right timing mm-hmm. of your ideas. Mm-hmm.
0: Last question on the EA IPO and sort of thinking about that versus other options – was it beneficial for the company, and what did it enable the company to do that that you guys couldn't have otherwise done if you had remained private, other than achieve liquidity for all the shareholders?
2: If you knew in hindsight that you were going to make a deal with Sega, yeah, mm-hmm, the company wouldn't have needed to go public, right?
1: You could have gone public a year later at a ten x, twenty x valuation, yeah, yeah, yeah. perhaps.
2: I, I think in the end, it's still a you know it's a happy outcome for everybody. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure yeah. a, a whole lot of long term employees were delighted that we went public and none of us was delighted with uh, the stock being flat (laughs) as a (laughs) pancake and even trailing down after the first. uh, look, we saw it with Facebook. We're potentially seeing it right
0: now with Uber. Sometimes it doesn't. I uh, think this
2: is something that has been, I understand
1: it as a entrepreneur, a startup employee, as venture capital. You can come to look at the IPO as like the end game right and it's really not it's, it's the, not it's, it's the end of the beginning right and so the valuation that you achieve and that you pump up to for that ipo you just keep the thing higher and higher and higher and higher but as we've seen with facebook and as the story is still to be written on on uber and lyft what happens after the ipo matters just as much if not more for your ultimate valuation uh and liquid where you decide to cash catch yeah out.
2: and again in hindsight i can clearly see that uh, 3D O, it wasn't a solid enough business proposition to really deserve to be started in the first place, and it definitely uh, was not a good idea to take it public. Yeah, and th- I think if you're going to take something public, you've got to have a really concrete idea of what operating business model you have mm-hmm. that you're going to be able to continue to systematically move forward and and, and fairly steadily improve upon. Otherwise, you just you just you shouldn't just voice that off in the public. And we saw this a couple of years ago with all the crypto stuff. Oh yeah, where really, come on! I mean, it, it, there were so many schemes, and it, it, I, I thought it was kind of sad because because they were able to skirt a lot of the securities laws by offering uh, to, to do it, you know, in exchange for the uh, cryptocurrency. Yeah. And yeah, a lot of those chickens have come home to roost.
0: <laughs> yeah, should we bring it home to grading?
2: I think we should
0: trip the way this all started was in an acquisition we grade with all these years of hindsight was it a good idea for the big company to buy the little company was that a good use of of capital the way that we have adapted that uh for ipos is was the transaction a good idea for the company to do did they do something interesting with the capital did they need the capital for something um, was a change in shareholders beneficial to the business in some particular way and frankly the grading is a little bit more arbitrary in the in these IPOs and but the discussion is i think the more important part and the thing that i index on when i lean really positive on on grading the the transaction and, and we don't care as much about sort of like how it went mechanically. Like, yeah, the stock, stock dipped afterwards, but like that's not what we're here to litigate. The really interesting thing to me is what an incredible negotiating position it gave you with Sega. And if you sort of didn't have just raised that cash, have been a... Uh, more l- sort of legitimate public company, um, you may not have been able to have the leverage that you needed in those negotiations to ultimately get your 1 million unit cap.
2: Yeah, th- that's that's true. I-, I would also add that we already had a pretty good history as a private company making acquisitions. Mm. Mm-hmm. And there again, you're going to end up with shareholders that are right. going to want some liquidity. Right, But as, you as everybody knows... After Electronic Arts went public, it made it even easier right. to make acquisitions, and the company made a ton of acquisitions in the 1990s. Oh. A oh. ton, really ton. Too many to even enumerate. If you think about the really big strategic lever that ultimately enabled EA Sports to be a big deal, it's the distribution channel. It's yeah. having a big pipeline so that the NFL wants to do business with you, yeah. and yeah. others want to do business with you, and that's how you get FIFA and, and Harry Potter and everything oh. else that's happened. Yeah. And being public and being able to acquire things and to be able to flow more goods through that channel as you're really building the power of that channel. Yep. It's funny, we hadn't really
0: talked about that as a benefit of going public yet on this show, is when you're buying companies with all stock and you're private, it's it's harder to do those transactions. When you're public, you know, whether you're paying with cash or whether you're paying with stock, it's roughly liquid equivalent value. to the, yes, yeah. It's, yeah. since it's liquid, you can, yeah, you can do you a lot know, more of one, it.
2: one of the ways it's different is it, in a private scenario, the acquisitions you're more likely to be able to make are going to be smaller, and they're mm-hmm. likely to be struggling in some way, right, which is yeah. why they're willing to sell it. You know, whereas uh, after you're public and you've got the currency, now you can buy a really healthy operating business. You can pay right. a fair price for it, but it doesn't cost it necessarily have to cost you a lot of cash. Right. And, then, and then you just bolt that on to your operating results. Building EA to what it is today. Yeah.
0: David, how do you think about it and how would you throw a grade on that? Well, I
1: think, um, I mean, it's obviously the right thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 an A for sure. The grading I think is most interesting on this show for IPOs that just happened. Like we just did Lyft, we did Pinterest, we did Uber. In there, we paint the scenario of what's going to make this an A in five or 10 years and what's going to make this a right. D in five or 10 years. This is exactly what you would have painted the scenario as an A. It would give you leverage to massively expand the business into a new market make acquisitions which became a huge part of the strategy over the next 20 years uh yeah obviously name
0: yep
2: right
1: on
0: (laughs) all right i think that is all we've got
1: that is all we've got thank you trip
0: thank you so much for joining us
1: my pleasure it's been fun
0: well listeners if you aren't subscribed and you like what you hear you totally should. We'll be gloriously covering all of the remaining big upcoming IPOs and doing more of our classic bread and butter episodes on acquisitions as well. If you want to go deeper on what it's like to build a startup, get interviews with expert operators and VCs, and explore some of David and my personal theses, you should become an Acquired Limited partner at glow.fm slash acquired. Thanks again to our sponsor, Perkins Coie, and we will see you next time. See you next time.